Hello, and welcome to the Survivor Historians Podcast. This is Mario Lanza. I'm here once again with Jay Fisher and Paul Oslison. Is that ooh, correct, Paul? Ooh, that, that was good. We're getting close here, yeah. Excellent. After, after seven years, I'm now almost able to pronounce Paul's last name, so this is a, a milestone. And, I'm in uh, the wrong room. Wait, I'm supposed to be here with an Asselson. <laughs> so I know a bunch of Asselsons on the internet. I could probably invite one in here if that would help you. <laughs> I still call the ass, so if that's easier, go for that. Uh, for people who um, listened to us last time, first off, I'd just like to say thank you. Um, we did our first Historians podcast, what, about a month and a half ago or so. Um, it was really intended to kind of be a one-time thing, just kind of to get some people together to talk old school Survivor. And there was a lot of uh, support. People loved it. We got a lot of emails about it, a lot of feedback. We had people on other podcasts even mentioning it. So because all you guys liked it so much, we have uh, decided to put together a second one. So just from the three of us, we'd like to say thank you. It's probably not going to be a piece of crap now that you actually have high expectations for us and you like it. So uh... <laughs> Yeah, I apologize in advance for letting you down. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I've made a living out of lowering expectations. This is going to be fun. <laughs> okay, and before we start, I just wanted to mention... Um, you may notice last time we did the podcast, there were four of us. We had um, my friend Beatles from Survivor Sucks. Beatles has decided he doesn't want to be a part of a weekly podcast, which is fine. That was kind of the option I gave him. He was he was kind of retired from the Survivor world. He didn't really want to get dragged back in. I would asked him as a special favor last time, hey, you want to do a one-time podcast with us? He was more than happy to do it. But now that it looks like this might be a semi-regular thing, I think it's just probably going to be the three of us. This will probably be a three-person podcast. So... At this point, you are free to pick your favorites of the three of us or the one you hate the most because we are going to be regulars. And uh, once again, just to uh, reintroduce ourselves in case people aren't aware of who we are, my name is Mario Lanza. I've been writing about Survivor for almost since day one. I'm most famous for my website, The Funny 115, which is the 115 funniest moments in Survivor history, which you can find at funny115.com. And I will let the other two guys uh, introduce themselves. How about you, Jay? Hey, my name's Jay Fisher. Go by the bearded hat guy and previously on Survivor. Uh, I've been around since the beginning, but I don't do a whole ton of writing. Although, if I get some feedback, that may or may not change. I'm in and out of different uh, story analysis groups and uh, just an all-around funny guy. What's up, Paul? <laughs> um, and I'm Paul Ostelson, Ostelson, whatever's easier for uh, for you to say. And uh, I'm probably best known in the Survivor community for being uh, one of the the three anchors on the Tribe of Survivor podcast. So um, I'm kind of used to the Survivor podcast thing. So happy to be here. And Paul, as I repeat every single time we do one of these shows, is probably the all-time best Survivor trivia expert. So if you ever want to know anything about Survivor, he is your guy. He was someone that I would not dare challenge in a trivia contest. Especially these early seasons. We are in my, like, prime right now. So Sad that you peaked at 13. <laughs> peaked at 13, yeah. It was all downhill from there. In fact, one might even say Paul may indeed be the world's foremost expert in reality TV. It's either him or Mertz. It kind of goes back and forth. So that's where we're going with this. <laughs> I'll take it. And Athelson is, is easier for me, by the way. You asked that question, I'm telling you now. <laughs> all right. Uh, we're going to get into Survivor here because I know you guys came to talk some old school Survivor. What we did last time is... You know, we kind of started, we didn't really have an outline. We really had no planning whatsoever. It was just really kind of thrown together because we were idiots. But this time what we did is we decided the last one felt a little rushed. We were kind of forcing 
trying to force as many seasons as we could into two hours. So this week we've decided to forget that. This is just going to be Borneo only. We're doing first season only. We're going episode one through 13. That's it. You guys cool with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess we don't have a choice, Mario, but yeah, sounds good. <laughs> exactly. See, I like to make this look like that they're in on the planning too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what I've been doing is we, we kind of gave a good overview of Borneo last time, just kind of the history of it, uh, the thoughts, the feelings, the things that were going on. And we got so much reader feedback that I decided there's a couple big things we didn't talk about. And I'm just going to guess start with the biggest one. And I know this is going to make Paul and Jay both a little uncomfortable because <laughs> there's a lot of speculation in this subject. But of all the feedback I got with Borneo, the one thing that came back is, was Borneo rigged? And I guess we'll just put Paul on the spot. What do you think, Paul? Well, I'm just saying, it's getting pretty dangerous. You're playing with my childhood right now, Mario. Depending on what conclusion we come to in the next five minutes, that could <laughs> destroy or uh, maintain my childhood memories. Um, I don't know. My take on the whole issue is, you look back to that that famous episode three that we touched on last episode, and I definitely think you have to accept that there was some producer manipulation in season one. And I think, Mara, you make a great case of it, and as I'm sure you will in the next couple minutes here, that they almost had to, uh, you know, to make sure the show was a success. So I don't know that I'd go as far to say that the entire season was rigged, down to each person getting off rigged, but I do think maybe it was the height of, uh, of producer interference in the game, um, and that they kind of almost got caught with it and uh, kind of had to slow down after that. So that's that's my very brief... Uh, take on whether or not Borneo was rigged. How about you, Jay? Television shows are really tough, and especially with the birth of reality television. I mean, I know that there were reality shows before Survivor, uh, Real World and stuff like that, but Survivor is kind of this first, you know, game kind of uh, show in a way where where they were going with this. It was big budget at the beginning, and they went out in a remote location there in, in Borneo, and, and they were filming, and Mark Burnett was kind of you know, ruling the roost out there. It's a, it's, it's a tough kind of environment. You're out there by yourself. You're, you're believing in this product. You're trying to make it work. And, you know, Burnett and all those people believed in the show, believed in the product, and they wanted to make it last. And they kind of knew that if they can get a foothold, if they can get a footing, if they can get a following and create a really compelling product, they can kind of have more carte blanche in the future. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're really trying to push this product out. They're really trying to get this thing to work. And they're, you know, they're, they're also feeling their way along. It was the first season for us as viewers. It was the first season for all potential uh, castmates in the future. But it was the first season for uh, the Survivor production crew as well. So I think that they were just trying to get the best thing out there. And I think that people were guided in certain ways and balls were dropped here and things happened there. And it's really fun and salacious. But I think that ultimately uh, it led to the success that Survivors had. Yeah, this, this is something we're going to talk about more specific incidents that people have brought up, but this is a story I just wanted to tell. A couple of years ago, I ran an online role-playing game in ORG called Survivor Okinawa, where you know I cast the people, I designed this game, and it was played all over the internet, and I had this huge, grand image in my head of how I wanted Survivor to go. And I swear, we're not more than two days into this game. You know, I'm the producer, I'm watching all their chats coming in, I'm watching the votes kind of start developing. And already two days in, I'm saying, no, you're voting off the wrong people. And I'm sitting there thinking this during my game. And that was when it finally struck me. Like, you know how pissed off I am just as a stupid producer of a stupid online game that I want to manipulate it and make it go my way because I want a better story. Like, if I was an actual TV producer with actual money on the line and franchise and, like, reputation, 
like you're damn right I'm going to be fudging the details or kind of pushing it in a certain direction at certain points if I can. And this is the one thing that, that I know a lot of Survivor fans don't want to hear or don't want to talk about, but like I almost think they had to do certain things along the way to make it go the direction that would have made better TV because there was so much at stake. They were, they were basically inventing a genre of TV. It was crazy. Yeah, it's it's along that way. They're they're trying to create a product. They're trying to get a show going. And obviously, you've got this game and you've got kind of rules and, and how things kind of go in the game. And that stuff will all kind of work out. But ultimately, uh, unlike other shows like uh, The Apprentice with Donald Trump and stuff like that, you're not really controlling who's going home. Ultimately, these contestants are putting people's name down on a piece of parchment and the majority rules with mm-hmm. the person going home. So it's tough to have all this money all this uh, time, thought, investment going into this thing that you think can work, and it all rides on these 16 Americans who have very little idea of what they're doing out there in the first place. I mean, do yeah. we re- I mean, just think about the fear of putting all this money into this production, and you have a Ramona versus Stacy final two. Do you think Survivor mm-hmm. comes back next year? I doubt it. Yeah, and it all comes back to that third episode. This is the one we harped on before. We're going to harp on again now. And honestly, any time Survivor is discussed, people need to harp on it because this was so important. That third episode where you had uh, Sonia going out the first episode, you had BB going out the second episode. And by, for all intents and purposes, Rudy was going to go that third episode. There was nothing mm-hmm. that would have changed that. And Burnett, you know, bless his heart, is sitting here thinking, you know, if the old people go one, two, three, I lose this giant chunk of my audience on CBS, which historically had an older audience compared to NBC or ABC at that time. Like, you don't want the older channel having the show where all the old people just get systematically their throats cut. It's like, yeah, it wasn't real kosher that he kind of stepped in and said, maybe you shouldn't vote off Rudy. But, I mean, I defy anyone to say they wouldn't do that in that circumstance. It really kind of took the show... Uh, to a different level, you know, you, you're you're sitting there and you're watching the show, and in the first episode, Sonia goes home. She was incredibly uh, old and feeble. She didn't stand well in that first physical challenge, and you know, we as an audience are trying to learn this game, just as the contestants were trying to learn it when they were out there, and it just made so much sense. You said, well, the old feeble person's going to go first, and Sonia went first, and then when Pagong went to tribal council, BB went because he was old and he was cantankerous, and there was, you know, problems going on there, and you just kind of looked at the game that way. I always urge people, and they always look back on it with rose-colored glasses from the future for some reason, but look at Pagong, and that's all I always say about Borneo, is look at Pagong. What Pagong thought about things was how we almost thought about things as America. They were our proxy, and they were all about voting out people based on merit, based on strengths, and it was just something like that. And, and, and so these old people kind of went out first. And so, you know, Rudy is an incredibly fun character, and him leaving, not only would have, we would have lost the personality that is Rudy, but it would have just lent toward that, uh, that thinking that it was going to be old people first and then to the, the, the slightly older people and then kind of getting down to these strapping young 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and it wasn't so. And just to build on that, you think, you know, the as we as we touched on on our first podcast about how unlikable Toggy really was, um, 
that Rudy was the was the saving grace of that Toggy Alliance. He was the one like likable person in there, you know, sitting up there up against Sue and, and Rich that were these evil people. You know, Rudy was just long there for the ride. He was kind of the comic relief in it all. And I think Toggy would have lost a lot of its you know, that, that little glimmer of a of a saving grace of humor there, uh, that Rudy brought to the table. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is just the one thing, yeah, that they, because Rudy was there, that alliance was kind of, you know, acceptable to the audience. I think he was the one that really did it. And I will always say that this was one of the most important things to happen in Survivor history, that Rudy over Stacy. It's just, yeah, it's, it kind of violates the spirit of anybody can win. It's everyone's out there, just uh, everyone has a fair shot. But like, man, the TV product was so much better with Rudy there. <laughs> And it's why I urge people to watch those first seasons, and it always baffles me when people, you know, hey, hey, we have new fans, we have new people, they hear about Survivor, they come in and they watch the show, and that's great. I'm all for people to come in and watch Survivor, but it's really tough for me when people say, oh, well, I started in Vanuatu, or I started at All Stars, oh, or I started uh, at Fiji, because to me, you know, the, the more modern, not, not the modern era of Survivor, but Survivor really starts to look more and more like itself, kind of starting with Marquesas, and we'll get there when when we get there, mm-hmm. but these first three seasons lays the groundwork for how this show works, and it is our learning curve, it is our learning process, and it kind of gets us going in there. And so, you know, watching this first season and watching how Pagong, you know, in particular, really reacts to how things are going is is really us learning the game and learning what the hell this show is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, this is something that I've said before. I forget if I said it on the first podcast, but I say this on the internet all the time that. People talk about Survivor like there were 24 Survivors. Not, not really. There was one Survivor. And then everything else is just trying to recapture that or trying to build off of that. It's, there's one Survivor, and then there's 24 sequels. And that's really, I mean, that's, how, that's my view of how it evolved. Or evolved. And I think it's even funny that we're talking about Survivor Borneo. That's not even what it was known as back in the day. It was just Survivor. And then when the second season came out, that was Survivor, the Australian Outback. But that mm-hmm. first season was just Survivor for the longest time. Well, and it wasn't until we got later it got to Survivor Borneo. Right. It wasn't even until uh, until All Stars, I think, when it was solidified that okay, season one will be referred to as Survivor Borneo because you heard different things. You had Survivor Borneo, Survivor Malaysia, or Survivor. Uh, uh, yeah, depending on how you pronounce the name of the island. Yeah, those are kind of the different the different names season one had. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask, when did it become Survivor Borneo? Because I I remember it wasn't for a long time, so it was I, All Stars. Yeah, I, All Stars. I, I even yeah. remember you know before that time you know on sites and you'd click on the season one site, there'd be different things. But I think it was after that first episode of Survivor All Stars when they announced the cast and they said you know Rudy Bosch Survivor Borneo and it just kind of oh. you know solidified that that's what the season would be called. When, when people do their confessionals, you know, especially in the early seasons, and they still do it today, it's, you know, their name, uh, and sometimes it says their tribe or it says their name and their occupation or their name and their hometown. In All-Stars, you know, because we were having people returning from different seasons, another way to identify them was the previous season they were on. So other than name and maybe hometown or something like that, it said Rudy, Survivor, Borneo. And, and that was really when it first, you know, when they were announcing it, like Paul said, and when it was on my TV in the confessionals was when I went, oh, so it's Borneo. Rudy, old guy. <laughs> um, okay, well, I'm going to go back to, uh, to the, the thing about Borneo being rigged, since this, there's some more to talk about here. Do you think that Borneo is tainted because of the rigging? I'm just curious. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> You're hitting us, with, uh, hitting us with the big, uh, big questions here, Mario. 
This is like 60 minutes. These are probing interviews. <laughs> In what respect, Charlie? Uh, what, what do you mean by tainted? I, I guess, you know, do we, do we, do we, are we casting a cloud on Richard Hatch, the winner, and, you know, the entire integrity of the show because of things that may or may not have happened? Is that what we're asking? Yeah, well, it's interesting because it would depend on when you ask this. Because I know when all the allegations about Borneo first came out, this would have been like maybe during Australia, maybe even Africa. The perception was, oh, reality TV is all fake. None of it was real. But obviously, that's not the way that we think, or I'm guessing most of the audience thinks. I think almost everyone to this day knows, okay, some of the stuff on Borneo was fudged, but they don't consider it tainted. They just consider it kind of a growing pain of a fledgling, fledgling young franchise. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I would agree, and I would I would say, uh, you know, I, I think I think ultimately what happened is again it's going back with the with the rose colored glasses. You know, we we didn't, uh, you know, it was a much more hot button topic, and you know because we didn't know how Survivor is or how Survivor was going to be and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it was a much more hot button question. But seeing uh, that Richard won the game and Richard won with this alliance. Of people and 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 that is the predominant strategy and kind of the way to play a survivor, you know, because in theory, kind of the quote unquote right people won or the someone from that 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 right way of winning won, even though it's a little tainted, someone can kind of look back and that say, well, you know, Richard really did kind of do. Uh, what was necessary to win the game. And it's not like, you know, Ramona or someone from left field won the game. And so I think everyone's kind of okay with it. Right. Maybe someone new coming into it who didn't know anything about Survivor and they hear that, then maybe that is something that seems really tainted about that first season. But, I mean, it's been a while since Borneo aired. This is kind of common knowledge. I think it's just just part of the show. Yeah. Um, It just occurred to me that some of the people might not know what we're talking about when I say rigged, because there's obviously more than just the, the Rudy Stacy vote. There's, can you remember some other specific incidents of things that came up that were a little sketchy about Borneo? Yeah, there's a few. Got any favorites? Um, didn't Richard see somebody being slipped candy bars and food <laughs> and stuff like that? Yeah, this is an allegation that we'll talk more about this later. Where this came up, for people who don't know, is that during a... In Richard's problem with the IRS is tax issues. If you ever yes. read hear of some of his depositions and stuff, yes. that he will claim in those interviews that he caught the producers slipping people food, he caught them doing favors for people, and he threatened to blow the whistle, and they said, well, we're going to help you with your taxes. This, we'll get more into this later, but yeah, this is this all kind of came up with the Richard tax dis, uh, depositions that, that there's allegations that he found. He, he caught producers slipping people things, like food. Speaking of slipping things, is there other <laughs> things people want to talk about? Yes. All right. I'm glad. Excellent lead-in, Jay. Okay. Hey, it was all you. <laughs> Out of all the feedback we got, this is great. Out of all the feedback we got for, for, for Historians Podcast number two, the number one question was, can you please talk about Kelly Wigglesworth slash blowjob slash sandwiches? <sighs> <laughs> Paul, any thoughts? I'm going to be honest. Some of this... <laughs> I'm going to be honest, some of this is new territory for me. I, I put kind of an, an asterisk next to uh, Survivor Borneo because I uh, I feel like it wasn't until Survivor Australia that I was really in it uh, with yeah. everything going on. So I, I actually can't comment on that right now. I'm interested to hear what exactly okay. this is all about. Yeah, this is something that I didn't hear maybe until a couple years ago. But this is a rumor that has been popping up all over the place. I don't know where it came from. I didn't remember hearing this 10 years ago. But there's a rumor that at a certain point in the game, Kelly Wigglesworth was trading sexual favors for 
food from the producers. <laughs> and I've never heard any proof about this. I've never heard, seen it written anywhere. But I know it came up recently, and it might have been through the Richard depositions. It might have been something, but it's all over the Internet now that people repeat this as fact. Oh, yeah, Kelly was giving out blowjobs for sandwiches. See, and honestly, I don't, know, I don't know what's going on with this one. I just heard this story. See, I'd be more inclined to uh, believe the story if she was getting Mexican food in exchange. You know, there's that one scene where she's lying in the hammock eating rice and pretending it's Mexican food and chips and salsa, enchiladas. There's a whole monologue about all the Mexican food she's craving. So if this were Mexican food that she was, you know, tra- uh, trading BJ's for, then I'd be more inclined to believe it. I don't know. And again, I don't want to get sued. I have no idea what the truth on this one is, but far and away, this was the number one question everyone wanted us to talk about. What's the story with Kelly and the sandwiches? And I'm just curious, have you guys heard any more than I have on this? I've heard little. I've heard little to none about this. <laughs> and 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 when this was kind of going on, uh, you you know, with people providing feedback about this this sort of uh, blowjobs and sandwiches thing, <laughs> I was I was sitting there saying, well. You know, now nowadays with the first season, again, they're learning on the curve. You don't know. And, you know, with the allegations of, of food and sandwich slipping that, that Richard was talking about and we'll talk about a little later. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. I, I always get the feeling you're on a television show. They're not going to let you die. Yeah. So there is that. And so if she really was trading sexual favors for a little bit of food, uh, good for the producers, good for anyone. I, I don't. I, I, it, it seems unbelievable. It seems like a fun yeah. story, and if it's true, w- w- wow. But <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, it's, this falls into the category of I'm guessing there's a kernel of truth in there somewhere, like perhaps someone was be give, being given food in, re- in response for being friends, friendly or something, but it seems awfully far-fetched that they were getting sexual favors for sandwiches in the middle of a reality show. But again, there's a lot of shady stuff in Borneo, so it wouldn't surprise me. Although this one in particular seems a little far-fetched, but as with most rumors, I'm guessing there's a kernel of truth somewhere in there. Yeah, flirting for flirting for something, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. exactly. And then, again, but you look at it realistically. If a producer has a sandwich, he would like sexual favors for it. Is Kelly really the first person he's going to? I mean, Jenna Lewis was right there. <laughs> I mean, she did porn videos. Come on. There's, there's a precedent here. Wait, hold up. Jenna did porn? Oh, I'm sorry. Did, is this news to you? <laughs> no. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I just wanted to make a joke. Although my friend George Hands told me a joke today, and I just thought I'd share it on the podcast because it's so horrible that it's good. His joke was, "Hey Mario, do you know what a Wiggles is worth?" And I'm like, "What?" He's like, it's, "She's worth a ham on rye." Oh my. <laughs> so anyway, for for all of our viewers that or listeners that want to know the truth on the sex for sandwiches story, the truth is none of us know. We have no clue. This is a relatively recent rumor and it's like jay said a particularly salacious one and it's a fun one but this was not one that people were talking about 10 years ago so i'm not entirely sure what's going on with this one and i believe since our legal team has consulted us with this it's best to say we have no real comment we have no idea what was going on with the sandwiches good 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 now let's all pay our taxes <laughs> exactly now speaking of that that's not that, that's not the only little rumor we got here um, this is another rumor that has come up many times over the years, and this one I'm almost positive is, is true, which was that when the Toggies and the Pagongs had to pick the diplomats to kind of go to the sand spit right before the merge and talk about the details, yep. that the producers specifically made them change who they picked. Have you guys, you guys heard about that, I'm assuming, right? No, enlighten me some I, more. I didn't know about this one either. Dude, Paul, what are you, five when you watched Borneo? 
Uh, pretty close. <laughs> yeah, this is one. This is a rumor that that came out almost right after Borneo that the original diplomats for that Sand Spit Summit, I believe, were who were they? Was it Gretchen and Gretchen? And, I don't remember. It's two of the older ones. I've heard Gretchen. Yeah, I think it was Gretchen and if not Richard, maybe maybe it was uh, must have been Rudy. I don't know, but but. I don't remember the details, but the deal was the producers switched him at the last minute. They said, no, you can't do that. You can't pick those. You're diplomats. We want you to pick the young single ones. And they basically made them pick, what was it, uh, Sean and Jenna Lewis? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, now that you say that, that does kind of ring a bell. It's, it's coming back yeah. to me. But this is a story that came out almost right after Borneo. Like, well, yeah, I mean, the producers were manipulating stuff left and right. They specifically made the tribes pick the young people that would probably get drunk and hook up because that's what they wanted. So... That's another one of those instances where, yeah, it's not really fair, but they were trying to pick TV over fairness. Yeah, but again, this is this is a, in the vein of I think that's a good call by the producers. Uh, as much as I like Richard and Rudy and Gretchen, I uh-huh. like all of them very much. Having Gretchen go out there, Gretchen is so workmanlike and businesslike. She would, you know, have have gone out there, and I mean, no, Sean and and Jenna did not uh, get drunk and hook up. They got drunk. But, you know, they, they didn't go out there and have, you know, a spicy television out there together. But, you know, those two personalities, you had Sean, our, our aloof doctor, and you had Jenna Lewis, the motormouth, who wouldn't shut up. And they kind of went out there and, you know, oh, my God, it over the food and stuff like that. And it was it was it was a much more enjoyable scene. And it got the job done, ultimately. And one of the best parts of that whole scene is Gretchen complaining about how long they're gone, how they could have already, you know, constructed a, a shelter in the time that they are spent on this on the spit. So mm-hmm. it turned out to be a good scene. Yeah, that's it's just a good scene, but it's just one more thing I wanted to bring up when people talk about there being, you know, manipulation in Borneo. That's one thing that I think that one's been proved. I've heard a lot of people talk about that as being true, and I've heard it happening in other seasons as well. But we'll get to that as well. Um, I got actually a great question here from a reader named Mel Acabras. He said, "How did the Pagan tribe know what Toggy was going to do to them?" As early as episode four or five, the Pagans already knew what was going on, and Toggy knew that the Pagans were eating rats. Unless they were flat out saying what was going on at challenges, we were talking about stuff that could not have been edited out of context. So the question is, again, how did the tribes know what was going on at the other tribes? Is this more producer manipulation here? Well, right. There's even that one that one line in there where they say, "Oh, we heard a rumor the other tribe caught a <laughs> what, what, <laughs> caught a fish." Was that yeah. was that the line? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, they heard a rumor. <laughs> yeah, the, the fish are talking. What did they did they overhear uh, Jeff Probst's little uh, in between monologues as he's walking along? Pagong has <laughs> caught a fish or Toggy, whatever it was. <laughs> that's funny, but yeah, that's that's just another thing that a lot of people brought up at the time, like. How the hell do they know what's going on in the other tribe? And this is one of those things that I also think was kind of manipulation or growing pains, if you will, where the producers were freely freely sharing information about the other tribe in an attempt to keep the tribes kind of balanced up until the merge. I like to chalk it up to growing pains more than anything else. I don't I don't know how all seasons of Survivor run. I mean, obviously that first uh, season of Survivor is chronicled pretty well, well, as well as it can be. Uh, I know that tell-all books, you know, when we get old and gray are going to be uh, very, very fun to read. But for the time being, you know, Burnett's book and, and things like that with the first season of Survivor, we do get kind of get the idea, and with the Stacey Stillman deposition, we get the idea that Burnett and some of those producers were really kind of walking around, checking up on things, you know, really keeping kind of a, a very mother hen kind of 
eye on things going on. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were dropping hints, dropping clues, mm-hmm. you know, and, and talking. And also, you know, when people get to the challenges, it's not like they get up, leave from their camp, walk like five minutes, and then they're at the challenge or something like that. I'm sure they're, you know, getting carted off, possibly in vehicles or something like that, or they're sitting around while they're setting up the cameras and the shots for the challenges. And uh, maybe they didn't have a tight lid on everyone, and those guys were just sitting around shooting the shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I guess really what it all comes down to is Borneo was the first try. They were, you know, trying to invent a new franchise. This is a, <laughs> it's a weird quote to use, but there's a quote from Silence of the Lambs where they say it's a fledgling killer's first attempt at transformation. That's, they were trying to make a new genre out of nothing, and there were some bumps. There were some bruises along the way. They got called on a couple things. There was lawsuits. But in the end, do you think it taints Richard's victory? Do you think he won fair and square? Within the context, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah, I mean, under the context he was under, but all the players were under, absolutely. He had to do what he had to do to win. He didn't get handed a win. Everything worked out the way it did because he, other players as well, but he and the Toggy 4 engineered it that way. But I don't think it taints the ending at all. It just, I think people that understand and love reality TV just need to be realistic over what they're watching, that Survivor has really kind of been manipulated since day one. It's not a documentary on what exactly happened. Survivor's been manipulated, but again, I'd like to call out to the fact that you can put so much control into this. Mm -hmm. You know, like with the Stacey Stillman deposition, Mark Burnett went up to Dirk and Deshaun and said, maybe you should vote for Rudy. And maybe they were influenced, but you know, if you read that deposition, they did say, you know, it was my vote. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I did vote for it. And so with that Richard win, yeah, maybe Richard had some help getting to the end or maybe, you know, just the way they were, you know, uh, manipulating the show. It was a path that was advantageous for Richard and company. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there were seven people on that jury and he was sitting next to Kelly Wigglesworth and he had to convince four of them at least to vote for him. And, you know, you can have Burnett and the producer saying, hey, maybe you should vote for Richard. (laughs) But the four people still had to write it down on the piece of paper. When you leave it in the hands of people, Mm -hmm. things can go not quite right. So I give all the credit in the world. I mean, they all were under the same kind of, you know, whatever was going on was going on to everyone. And I don't think it takes anything away from uh, what Richard was able to do. Yep, I totally agree. It's um, It worked out the way it should have worked out. I mean, Survivor developed the way it did because of that. And as my final thought, I just think it's sad that had Kelly known she had given sandwiches to the jury, they might have voted for her. <laughs> sandwiches, good, yes. version, good. Yeah, sandwiches lead to a lot of good things in the world. All right, um, let's move on to our second topic. We started with the heavy one, uh, that... That was, a, that was a deep topic, but everyone was asking about it, and we had to get into it first. But the next one, um, people just ask us questions. Um, could you just share some behind-the-scenes stuff that a lot of people might not know about? This is, this is a real common question I get from people who didn't watch Borneo at the time, didn't read the interviews, didn't follow all the early shows. Just little things they might not know about. And do you have any, Paul, do you have any particular favorite behind-the-scenes things that you have heard about but people might not know? Right. The one the one I think that is really interesting is that the reward challenge in episode two that was cut out uh-huh. um, was actually, you know, everyone talks about that epic challenge in Survivor Australia with uh, Colby versus Michael, you know, putting mm-hmm. the bags of water on the pole actually happened in Borneo first with uh, Richard versus Joel, if I'm correct. 
Absolutely. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Mark uh, Burnett talks about that in his book, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why Pagong and like when they uh, when Pagong ends up going to uh, Borneo, they're allowed to bring three items with them. That's one of the things that Jen and Sean decide on. And one of the things is like the mosquito nets to mm-hmm. bring over. And I think those mosquito nets were part of the package they won uh, during that second reward challenge. Why it wasn't on uh, on on TV, I always heard it just was a problem with filming stuff. It didn't they didn't film it right or missing some footage or, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jay? You got any favorites? Uh, someone brought it up uh, in in the in the contracts, and they do talk about it in some of the Borneo commentary. But you know, it, it was a real fun thing uh, to look at some of the uh, the history of the of the reward challenges, and in some of the you know what they get for reward. Uh, and in particular, you know, near the end of the game, at the uh, when they get down to about uh, four or five or so people, uh, they do a reward challenge, and it's the one that Kelly wins, and she gets to go to uh, they cart her off to another island where she gets to have like a dinner and a bar and watch the first 10 minutes of the first episode of Survivor or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was all completely done on the fly. And uh, if you listen to the commentary, I don't know if it's in the Borneo commentary or if they talk about it in some other place, but they talk about how they were that contest they, they were going to do, they were going to basically compete for like a couple of beers or like a beer. One beer. They all, they all threw a fit. They all just threw a fucking fit and said, I'm not going to, uh, kill myself for a beer and you need to change it. And there was a big holdup. And, and so, you know, it was just, a, uh, an instance of contestants trying to take power and, and, uh, and say, well, I'm not going to give you a show unless you give me something. Yeah. I think a lot of people that weren't there following the show at the time would be surprised to know that there were several instances, I believe during Borneo when the, the, the players threatened to revolt where they basically tried to unionize right there. They said, you know what? We don't like this. We're sick of this. We don't like the conditions. And they just threatened to quit. They wouldn't do, do, play the game anymore. And so the producers kind of had to bow down backwards to, to uh, accommodate that. And I know that was one of them that you talked about, that you know, we're late in the game. They just had a couple of good rewards. And they were, there was a reward challenge, and the reward was one beer. And the players were ready to revolt. They were absolutely going to pitch a shit fit. And so on the fly, the producers kind of said, okay, well, um, we'll uh, show you the first five episodes of, your, of the season if you win instead. And like in the book, Mark Burnett talks about how this, their eyes just lit up because if there's anything, you know, these attention whore, fame whores want to see it themselves on TV. And this became the most talked about and anticipated reward of them all. And really all it was was they drove Kelly around in a boat for like an hour. They took her to like the production camp. They dressed it up like it was a village, and they showed her the first five minutes of unedited, the first five minutes of the unedited episode. And in the book, he talks about, yo, Kelly loved it. She was on cloud nine. It was the greatest thing, and it was just a reward they threw together at the last minute because the players were going to revolt. Right, and and the story that uh, Jeff Prof and Mark Burnett have said about that was that under other, 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 under other circumstances, Mark Burnett would have said, "Well, fine, then you don't play for your reward." But suppose that the sponsors were there uh, during mm-hmm. that time, so he didn't want a an all out revolt when the sponsors were there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, another behind the scenes one. This is a real popular one, but I'm bringing it up just because people asked about it. They wanted to know. The backstory um, to Pagong trying to vote out Jeff Probes to Tribal Council in episode two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the fun. This is for people who don't know. You know, it's the first Tribal Council. The, the Toggies went, and the Toggies were very businesslike. They're older. They play by the rules. And then you have the Pagongs, who are the lovable goofballs, led by Greg, who really, for lack of a better term, was just a huge asshole. <laughs> he, just, he just wanted to mess with the game, mess with the producers. He hated the whole concept of being on TV, of being a part of their little world. 
So Greg and Colleen and maybe a couple other ones decided, you know, at Tribal Council, that second episode, we're going to vote for Jeff Probst. So they all wrote down his name. Jeff goes to collect the ballots. He's pissed. He pitches a little fit. It's it's just one of these behind-the-scenes things that just adds a lot of character to Borneo because everyone was kind of learning how this process worked together, and the, the Pagongs really wanted nothing to do with the process. So they, just to mess with Jeff, they voted him out. It wasn't just Greg. It was I know a couple of them did it, but it was this is a fun behind-the-scenes story. I've already said it several times in this podcast today, but watch Pagong. When you're watching that Borneo, watch them, because not only are they fun, not only are they really kind of our proxy for learning the game, but Pagong also had these characters that were kind of counterculture in a way, kind of uh, against the sort of TV-making process. The three that stick out in my head are Greg, Colleen, and Jervis. And, you know, some of the things they do didn't make television, like voting out Jeff Prost. But then you can see in some of their interviews, some of the things they do, you can see them clearly defying the camera in some way, whether they're with their words or with their actions. Uh, you know, the target and the sitting duck in that one tribal council. I mean, that's all just silent protests against the game and how it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really fun. Yep, absolutely. It's In particular, Colleen is one that I don't think gets enough credit for that. People often say, well, Greg was crazy and Colleen was the sweetheart. But if you really watch Borneo, they're really just peas in a pod, those two. Yep. Colleen is not a sweetheart. She was kind of forced into the sweetheart edit because she was likable and cute. But, I mean, she's just as counterculture as Greg is. She's sitting there needling people just like he does and just never got as much credit for it as I thought she should have. She's, uh, she's telling Richard to go get his liposuction. Yeah. I mean, come on. The sweetheart wouldn't say that. <laughs> No, you know, it, no, it's, she, she was, she was, uh, she was an assassin. I mean, she would just sit there and just really rip into people, mm-hmm. but you know, she was so cute and lovable that people would, would, uh, kind of roll off and say, Oh, you, but I mean, she was, she was, she was a kneeler. And she was funny. That's the thing. You watch Colleen and people wonder why she had so much appeal And it. You know, she's not the most beautiful woman to ever be on Survivor. She's not the hottest. She barely fills out a bikini. But, like, everyone loved her because she was cute, she was unthreatening, and she was just fun. She was funny, and she was smart. There's good tonality, and there's good uh, facial expressions with her. Uh, if I were to teach an acting class, which I do from time to time, I would have people look at there's a there's a fun thing. It's it's the where Greg has his coconut phone mm-hmm. and he's talking into it, and you know everyone's kind of like, aha, look at Greg, he's a weirdo, and he's talking into a phone, and he's just you know being kind of a a weird camera whoreish kind of guy. But then there's a there's a scene where Colleen is describing it, and she has this thing, and she's sort of looking off camera, not directly at it, and kind of off in the distance, sort of astonished and tonelessly, and she says. Greg has a coconut, and he talks into it like it's a phone. <laughs> it, funny. It's, it's a really, really kind of flippant uh, sort, of, sort of scene, and it, it, I think it really captures uh, Colleen's dry wit very, very well. Oh, yeah, and again, the, the whole subplot about how Greg and Colleen, you know, we just go off in the jungle and we have sex. I mean, I've read, I've read that that was Colleen's idea. That wasn't a Greg thing. Like, Colleen was just as anti-TV, anti-formula you know, as Greg was, and she's like, well, you know, if we're just going off and talking, everyone's going to assume we're having sex, so that's what they want to see on TV. So let's just say we're having sex just because we know what will make it onto the episode. I mean, so a lot of that, I think, was just as much her as it was Greg. All right. Uh, speaking of Colleen, this is something that I have to get off my chest. This is something that's been bugging me, and only an old school fan would kind of would kind of feel the way that I do. But I'm part of a group right now where there's a bunch of Survivor fans kind of putting together a project to pick the top 100 characters of all time. This sounds like a shameless plug. This sounds like a shameless plug, but it's not. This is actually I'm going to bitch somebody out. 
Um, I have, there's a lot of people in this group whose opinions I really respect, a lot of old school fans. They're picking, you know, these top 100 characters. That's, that's a big deal. There's been a lot of big characters. And what kills me is that a lot of people don't rank Colleen anywhere near the top. Like, to me, she's a top 10 character. I don't, I don't even see that as negotiable. She was as big as anybody has ever been. Now, I agree that some people will find fault with that. They might rank her a little lower, but I don't see how anybody could rank her anywhere lower than top 40. I mean, even that's being generous in my mind. But I know I know a couple people that are old school fans that grew up in Borneo that are trying to rank Colleen as one of the 90th best characters of all time, meaning that there's minor characters from Gabon that are ranked higher than Colleen in the pantheon of Survivor characters. And I have to get this off my chest. That this absolutely pisses me off as an old school Borneo fan. I think that's uh, another Colleen is another example of uh, you can really tell it, that someone lived through the Borneo era and really remembers uh, that first season versus going back and watching it on DVD or maybe watching it, not really processing it until later uh, and whatnot, because Colleen was a huge, huge, huge character. When we look back at Borneo, a lot of people talk about Richard and they talk about Sue and, you know, they were, they were big characters, but I would defy you to say that there was anyone more uh, talked about more, uh, just more at their apex than Rudy and Colleen. I mean, they just stuck out to everybody. Right. What, what's kind of unfortunate about the show now is that it's so based on, on all-stars, on returning players. And so I think a lot of fans have a tendency to look at, at returning players throughout the years, and that kind of dictates who they see as, as the major players in each season. And because Colleen was never brought back, not that they would have probably killed to have her on All-Stars, she didn't want a part of it, you know, because of that, she unfortunately is one of those ones that was kind of forgotten. I'd say the same case for Juris. I think we touched on that before. But, you mm-hmm. know, not to include Colleen in that top 20 is, is quite a shame. It, that, that breaks my heart, I have to say this. It's, of all the things I've ever been, you know, involved with in Survivor over the years, the fact that people don't, rank her as a major survivor character absolutely just breaks my heart we'll get to it uh you know if if we do this all the way through all stars i think we can talk about casting and you know what they tried to do who they wanted who they got who they didn't get i think that's a fabulous conversation for a later time yeah and i know that colleen had wanted no part of the show uh again that that she came back so even though the producers probably wanted to kill people to get her on the show uh she wasn't going on the show but but still you know her character her her wit her humor uh and 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 her presence on the screen really paved the way for a lot of people that came in immediate seasons afterwards and maybe way on down the line so if you're a fan of some sort of you know young uh flirty female who you know likes to you know eat up the camera time, you probably have Colleen to thank for that. Absolutely. All right, let's move on here. Um, this is a topic we didn't touch on at all in the first podcast, which is absolutely unforgivable, and that is maybe the most important vote in Survivor history, the Gretchen vote. And I can't believe we didn't touch on this. I'm going to blame Beatles. Yeah, that was Beatles. That was all Beatles. He dropped the ball on that. <laughs> yeah, if he were still alive, he'd apologize. Yeah, serves him right. All right, so let's start on this one. Paul, I know you have a lot to say about the Gretchen vote. Right, well, well, in all fairness, we did touch on it a little bit last time about the craziness of, uh, of the votes that were thrown around. But, I mean, crazy to think that the first kind of big power move to, to uh, take over another alliance only needed four of ten votes to, uh, to take <laughs> out the person they wanted. Crazy. That's funny. I never thought about it that way. 
not just four of ten, but just the fact that the four for Gretchen was the only plural person that received the vote, that tribal council. Right. And that is that is just unheard of. Um, for me, the big significance of the Gretchen vote, this is something that there's many things I say when you talk about Borneo, you have to talk about this because it's important. The Gretchen vote really is the linchpin of that entire season. In fact, some would say of Survivor, the franchise, because honestly what happens is, you know, for six episodes, the person who got voted off got voted off for social reasons. Well, we did, Sonia was old, but she just couldn't ma- handle it with the group. BB was cantankerous and was old, and we just didn't like him. And there's Dirk was losing weight. He was weak. There was Joel saying sexist things. They were all social reasons. And then episode seven comes along, and Gretchen gets voted out, who is the absolute heart of the Pagongs. She is the soul of the audience. She's the mom that all the middle-aged women are watching for because she's the one that they relate to. She's the preschool teacher. And she gets voted out despite the fact that everyone loved her, even the Toggies loved her. And to me, that was such a turning point in Survivor that almost anybody I know who watched Survivor still remembers where they were to this day when that episode was on TV. Absolutely. It was, it's a pivotal episode. And I guess if we're talking about top characters of all time, I think Gretchen, you know, as far as as a character goes, she is a nice archetype. You know, she did have kind of the one business, but she was such an affable person. Uh, You know, she, she was someone that you really grew to respect. And I think that her importance just in Survivor lore cannot really uh, be understated. I think, you know, not, not just her character, but the fact that her character gets the ax at the merge vote in the first season of the show is just pivotal. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, Paul, do you remember? You remember that episode? I'm sure you were real young, though. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't peg it to a uh, specific incident, but but I I kind of remember watching it even back then and thinking, huh, what just happened? And it, it didn't take. You know, it took a while to really realize exactly. You know what was going on. You know, the fallout after that. Yeah, that's the thing that that people who have grown used to watching the show over the years are used to strategy. People getting knocked off for strategy. That was the first strategic vote. That was the one, there was no reason to get rid of her but strategy, and that really knocked a lot of the audience for a loop, I think. That's the one that, that at the time, people talked, thought back to the, the first season, the episode that they remembered, besides the finale with the Gretchen vote, because no one got voted out just for strategic reasons. It was purely social up to that point, and it almost seemed unfair. It's like, no, 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 you don't just vote out their leader. That's not cool. And it's funny, the reaction to that, how it would be now, no one would bat an eyelash, but at the time... That was just a major event that, I mean, it made you go back and watch the episode again. Like, what the fuck? What, that, that's not how Survivor works. You don't vote out the leader that everyone likes. It's not how Survivor works, but it is how Survivor works. And that episode showed us exactly how it works because, you know, it, we, we all aren't cold and calculating as we watch the show now. And so, you know, you, you really didn't have the proper context. You know, Gretchen goes home and then you turn off your television uh, when, the, when the episode's done and you say, well... Wow, I guess uh, I guess I learned something today. No, you were pissed. I was pissed. I was like, oh my god, Gretchen went home. Gretchen was awesome. How the hell could they vote her out? But then you know, when you think about it, even before the season ended, you know, it was it was that showing that it was the alliance. It was forming an alliance, forming a voting block, and voting out the other people. And it was it was slowly but surely. And it started with Gretchen, but it was slowly but surely. You basically you, know, you basically said it's not about you know how well you can build a shelter. It's not about how you can work and get water and that sort of stuff. It's about forming these alliances and, uh, you know, outlasting other people. And I, I think that that was a, a real big learning moment. And we did, all didn't learn it right, right away, but mm-hmm. it, was, 
it took it took Gretchen going home for everyone to basically say, oh, that's how it is. Well, and the vote almost makes the Dirk vote make sense from before, because that was kind of like, a, okay, well, Dirk went home, and then, yeah, so I think it's in the next episode when uh, when they do the whole uh, sequence with, with Sean saying, or maybe it was a, another episode down the line where he's saying, Happen, four votes for Dirk, four votes for Gretchen, four votes for Greg. If it happens one more time, then I know there's an alliance. <laughs> yeah, classic Sean. <laughs> yeah, Sean's still trying to figure out if 9-11 happened, by the way. Oh, poor Sean. Poor Sean. <clears throat> but yeah, that, that Gretchen thing, like you said, this is really what Survivor is. It's really, I mean, it really wasn't what Survivor was for six episodes. Yes, yes it is what Survivor is, but that it was such a 180 from what we were used to seeing. Everyone's thinking, oh, cool, the nature show, people living on an island, it's fun, I love these characters. And then, bam, the nice one, nice mom gets voted off. And like, I could just picture parents with little kids that watched the first six episodes of Survivor getting pissed because they had to explain to their kids why Gretchen got voted off and they couldn't do it. I mean, this seems so out of touch for people that watch Survivor now, but I bet there were legitimately parents pissed that wrote to CBS about because they had to explain to their kids why the nice mom went home. Um, another little interesting fact I'll throw out there that it wasn't until, can you guess how many seasons later was it after Gretchen that, um, that a female was the first person voted off at the merge? Oh, gosh. It's not as far as China, is it? Uh, pretty close, uh, Survivor Fiji, and even that is a little bit weird with Michelle because they uh, were divided oh. into two groups. So I mean, Fiji China is the next time that happens that uh, that a female was taken out first at the merge. That's crazy. Okay, now go ahead, Jay. No, uh, I was just going to say uh, with Gretchen again. Uh, you know, we we as an audience came to really like Gretchen and 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 as Mario was just talking about the having to explain the, the Gretchen vote off, uh, you know it, it really kind of it set the tone for everything else afterwards. You know, like with uh, you know the, the Toggy Alliance and all that sort of stuff, and it, it really kind of vilified everyone going. And it, it what I think every season of Survivor really makes us you know kind of with with the winner with how the game is played. It kind of asks us the question is this an okay way to play and that alliances it was tough to swallow at first and it was tough to swallow because the alliance cut out people like gretchen yeah absolutely and that's the thing it, it just worked it was so perfect that moment in survivor because it was that vote to that person by that alliance and it's just amazing the synergy how it all kind of came together like that because this is something a lot a lot of people might not know that gretchen wasn't supposed to be the target at that vote no it was uh She's not first in the alphabetical list. No, it's actually no. Greg was supposed to be the first target at that vote because he was the one they were scared of. He was the he was the uh, the athlete, but he was he was kind of their social leader. I mean, Gretchen was like their maternal leader, but Greg was the one they kind of took their cues from because he was the fun one. And the way it, w- it should have worked out is this. Burnett talks about this in his book is that it was supposed to be Greg, but Greg won immunity, and so it became Gretchen. And so it's almost it's funny the way that worked out that. Had that vote been Greg, I don't think it would have had the emotional impact. No, because Greg was just kind of emotionally distant, um, you know. But but you know, as as was was mentioned earlier, we saw it coming. You know, uh, with the with the leaks from production or whatever. You know, Joel brought it up, and it was uh, we heard a rumor that you guys were <laughs> gonna gonna vote us all out and go to the voting <laughs> block. And you can see going in. Paul mentioned it earlier in the show when Sean and Jenna were at the sand spit going over their. Uh, 
ambassador duties, Gretchen's sitting here going, we could be making a shelter, we could be doing this, we're wasting time. And you can see where everyone's uh, uh, minds are going. Richard and, and Sue and everybody in the in the Tagi Alliance is like, all right, let's get to the merge and we'll just uh, use our votes and vote people out. And there's Gretchen basically saying, nope, you know what, I need to build a shelter, I need to do all these sorts of things. And you have Greg and people going, you know, if they're just going to band up and vote alliances, you just might as well vote me off right now. It was just all across the board. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it would have been a shame had Greg gone first instead of Gretchen because we never would have got to see in the next episode where Greg and his sister make incest jokes about each other. Oh, gosh, the letters from home. I know, just think of what a loss that would have been without the incest scene. Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think Gretchen had a similar scene with her sister, so it's a good <laughs> thing Greg stuck around. Yeah, I don't know. You don't know that, Paul. Yeah, I don't write, know, I don't know, I have a hunch, so. I'm, I'm going to write some flash fiction with Gretchen and her sister doing lesbian scenes together. <laughs> That's your next project. Uh, uh, loved ones from, or uh, uh, contacting loved ones. You could do a whole series on uh, the loved ones we never got to see. Oh, man, the Greg one would be off the hook. I don't know how I could top what happened in real life. <laughs> no, that, again, it was a, a whole thing of you just can't write that. Exactly. <laughs> All right, um, so we talked about Gretchen. Uh, next on my agenda I have here that we didn't really touch on last time are the spoilers, kind of the spoiler culture and Borneo and the whole Jervis X thing, which is a big topic I can't believe we missed last time. Jervis, Jervis and, the, and, the, and the Red X. Um, I mean, I know a bit about it. I know Paul does, but Mario, you are Mr. On the Internet scene from the beginning. Yeah, lead us through. I, All right. sure, I don't think I knew what the Internet was back then, Mario, so you got to take this one. Okay, I mean, I, uh, well, you're, you're in Montana. Do you still know? Do you know what the Internet I mean, is now? It's, it's still a new concept. New, still a <laughs> new concept, so. You guys just got AOL this week, right? <laughs> AOL's hip. Awesome. Yeah, so, okay. So, while Paul was out doing the field and working on his cotton gin, I will tell you what was going on at the time here. Okay, so, what happened with Borneo is it was a constant battle between the producers and the fans not to let spoilers leak. And this was a big deal because there was so much writing on Survivor. This was maybe the best kept secret in television history, who won Survivor. And there was so much at stake that the producers could not leak any of this out. And so there was kind of this fledgling spoiler movement behind the scenes where people would watch video captures, they'd look at pictures that were released by, the, by CBS, and try to predict what was happening in future episodes. And we'll talk more about this later, but the big thing came when someone discovered the source code for the CBS website. Someone went in there about six episodes in, seven episodes in, and they went through the, the source code on CBS.com, and they noticed there were little pictures of every player that was going to get voted off, and there was a little X next to them. And they noticed that every player in CBS.com's web server had an X next to their name except for Jervis. And this is how the famous Jervis X spoiler came out, that someone said, hey, there's no picture on the website hidden behind the scenes of Jervis with an X next to his name. Jervis has got to win. And this was the, absolutely the first giant spoiler in Survivor history, and it took over the entire Internet for a while, to the point that when Jervis was voted out, people were absolutely stunned. It's fun that they are stunned, too, because, again, once you saw the Alliance uh, train moving, I mean, even though we were kind of new to the whole I mean, we were new to Survivor, and we were definitely new to this whole alliance voting block thing. It didn't take you very long. Once Gretchen went home, and once Greg went home, and once once the the ball started rolling, I mean, you you couldn't then. You, I mean, I I just couldn't imagine 
anyone going against this voting block at that point. So uh, I didn't know about the Jervis X thing until a little bit later, but I will say that it was something I was very familiar with right at the beginning, uh, right after the season, because the internet was new to me uh, back at this time uh, and, and stuff like that. And I loved the show and I watched it from the beginning and I, and I was just hooked. And it was the first thing that I really wanted to just look up on the internet and then dial up to the internet and just type in survivor things. And that's where I started to look up recaps uh, online or, you know, old message boards. And I saw them talking about Jervis and the picture and the X. And that was something I very, very much remember from looking up back in the day and just being astonished at what I was reading. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. If you look at Survivor and how it played out, it was so obvious that an alliance was going to run that game to the end that it was just so funny that you know, all of a sudden there's a spoiler that came out that had everyone talking about, oh, the alliance is going to fall. No, Jervis is going to win. Although, if you looked at it logically, which I was kind of doing at the time, I'm like, there's no way Jervis can win. He's going to be picked off third if the alliance isn't going to be broken. But it was funny how many people were sucked in by that. And it's always one, I've always wondered because of that, did CBS plant that there on purpose, knowing that someone would discover it and people would start talking about the show again? That's, I've heard proved both for pro and against that over the years that, oh yeah, CBS planted that. They knew someone would find it and it would get people buzzing. And then someone else know that it was just a simple mistake behind the scenes and someone, some smart programmer caught on. So I don't even know if it was planted that way on purpose, but it's amazing how much more buzz the show got right around that time when it looked like the next couple episodes were going to be predictable when this Jervis X suddenly came up and everyone went crazy saying, oh no, something exciting and different is going to happen, but it never did. But it served the same purpose because people were still watching the show. Yeah, one thing I always, you know, love going back and watching those Borneo episodes is that there used to be this little uh, little intro they would play before the actual recap where they kind of would give the premise of the show, uh, mm-hmm. 60 people, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, some of those early ones when, when they would say, you know, every three days, like, they will hike to Tribal Council and then they would show shots of them at Tribal Council. Early on, they would show shots of them at the, at the merge. They would show shots of them at the Final Seven Tribal Council, you know, n- not thinking that people were actually going to, like, look at that and uh, draw something from it. So uh, that's always interesting to look at. Do you know, you guys know about the fake Final Four shot, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, Jane, Paul might not have known about that. You weren't on the Internet. But, yeah. What happened, Paul, is they had those shots where they inadvertently spoil with who the final eight were going to be or whatever. And it was funny that the producers never seemed to catch on that fans would be looking for that stuff. And what happened was everyone, you know, they caught, I forget what episode, one of the early ones, where they, they inadvertently spoiled, I think, who the final eight were or something. And at a certain point, a couple episodes later, Mark Burnett actually inserted a fake final four shot in those pre-credit sequence where he took, like, the final six tribal council. He digitally, like, erased, I forget, I think he took out Richard, he took out Rudy or something, or took out Sue. But he, like, digitally erased them, and he stuck it in there knowing that people would see it and would go apeshit, and that's exactly what happened. And I think it's still there. I think it's, um, is it before the Greg episode? If you watch the Greg episode, watch the pre-credit sequence, there's a shot of a future tribal council, but a couple of the players have been digitally erased, and it looks like Jervis, Colleen, I think Rudy, and Sean are the final four, and they just did that to, just to fuck with people. <laughs> yeah, Colleen was there, definitely. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and I know that was done intentionally, because I've read interviews that Burnett did that specifically just to fuck with people. It, it's interesting, again, it's, it's the growing pains, it's the first season. Uh, you know, you can even look at uh, the famous introduction, uh, the, the, the 
the theme song and intro where you see all the characters uh, come on the screen that Survivor has made famous and still one of the better intros uh, in television history. And if you look at some of those shots of uh, some of the players, you know, some of them are just uh, still pictures. Some of them are animated shots of them hanging out in their camp or Colleen with, you know, bugs flying around her face and stuff like that. But you can see, you know, Rudy clearly has uh, multiple days of beard going in. And when he was going to go home uh, uh, at the Stacey Stillman vote, he didn't have that full of a beard. And so, you know, if you were clever and paying attention, you saw a picture of Rudy with a full beard, you'd say, well, he has to survive this vote because Mm -hmm. he doesn't look like that yet. And he had the famous picture of Jenna Lewis uh, crying uh, after the merge when uh, Jeff was telling her that her family was too dumb to send in a uh, 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 from home (laughs) video on time and stuff like that. And she's bawling her eyes out because she's missing her family. And, you know, I didn't pick up on those contextual clues and I wasn't really going on the Internet at that point. But, you know, nowadays you look for those things and maybe you look for a clue like, oh, look, they're in the mud and that's a challenge that I haven't seen yet. So maybe they survived that first episode and Hey, with 2018, 20 survivors out there, it's pretty good. You can do that, but still they were not so cognizant of that back then. Yeah. In particular, the one shot you mentioned, the Jenna Lewis shot, um, I forget who's behind who, but somewhere in that shot, I think Kelly's in the background or Jenna's in the background of Kelly's shot. One of them is in the background of the other one's intro shot, which Kelly is really, to Jenna. Yeah. yeah. Which is, ridiculous because they started the games on different tribes and that's the best spoiler or maybe the stupidest spoiler i've ever seen because they give it away in the opening credits but yeah like you said they just weren't paying attention to this and despite all that they somehow kept the winner secret to the end which i don't know how they did they could never do that now somehow they managed to keep that winner secret which baffles me to this day how they managed to do that it was pretty shocking i mean i remember and and it's so different you know a lot of people ask me you know what makes borneo different from all the other episodes. Well, there's a lot of things, just the way it's set up, the way it's shot, uh, just the general naivete of everything. But, you know, the fact that they announced Richard the winner that night mm-hmm. and everybody knew it and you could see them like Richard wins. He has puts his hands up to his face in shock and, you know, oh my God. And, you know, you're the winner of Survivor. And then you see like the jury and the final people, they all kind of get together and kind of have a little moment there. And you can tell they had like a rap party and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like everybody knew. They all knew. <laughs> What's funny about that last shot of Borneo is if you look close right when they go to credits, you can see the IRS coming out to immediately arrest Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, we're about halfway through the podcast here, and as a public service announcement, I just wanted to mention something. Um, It was reported to me last week that Rob Sesternino really liked our first podcast. He talked about it on Rob Has a Podcast, that he listened to half of our show and he loved it. So I'm just letting him know that now that we are halfway through this episode, so he is free to turn off the, the his MP3 player and he can be done listening to it. So you're off the hook, Rob. We've done half a show for you. You're welcome. No more Big Mary Kills along the way, buddy. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, next step for the podcast, I got a bunch of little topics that Jay kind of came up with. You have a little list here of things that you wanted to talk about in our second podcast. Yeah, uh, just some of some of some of the fun things that are going on. Again, talking with this first episode, talking with the first uh, of everything, uh, voting people out, alliances. Let's talk about some of the challenges that were on that show. Things that worked, things that didn't work. Uh, are there any challenges that uh, stand out in your guys' minds? 
Uh, there was one, if I would say there's one timeless challenge that they need to do every season, it's the Blair Witch Project's parody. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with those big-ass cameras. Yeah, every season. We should just do a Blair Witch Project. I mean, that was so topical. Even, I think, even when Survivor came out, that was kind of outdated. So it's funny that that's still the one that, I, that always stands out in my mind. And the best part about the whole thing is, you know, Jeff Probst, you know, that's, that's the tree meal they got was Jeff Probst running in the forest. <gasps> Survivor, <laughs> Blair Witch Project. Pagong Beach, sundown. <laughs> Again, we'll just chalk that up to growing pains. <laughs> it's, grow, it's growing pains. And you're right. I mean, Blair Witch Project in 1999 and, and, and early 2000 was kind of hip and, and, and ghost. But, I mean, that's what it is. It was just this hip flash in the pan kind of deal. And I know that it's inspired things uh, from then on. But, you know, it was, it was kind of weird at the moment. Like, they were like, hey, let's do this Blair Witch Project thing. And I was like, really? Blair Witch? Really? Yeah, I think they were drunk that day. Oh. I mean, Let's do Blair Witch. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the Blair Witch had a similar impact on society in that year as Jack and Jill did this past year. So I don't think Survivor's <laughs> lost that aspect ah. of it. Yep. I remember when Jack and Jill fever swept the country last summer. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, well, it, go ahead. It, it, you know, and they've done that. They've done idioms of that challenge in later seasons where Jeff Probst gets on there and tells them a story, and then they go to different stations, and they have to answer a question from the story correctly. But with the cameras, oh, it's fantastic. Rudy, yeah. Nothing new. Nothing makes better TV than an old person trying to figure out technology. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. This is queer. <laughs> Uh, there, there were so many fun challenges. Uh, one, one that that uh, sticks out in my head. It was an early immunity challenge, and it was, uh, it was, it took place at night, which was kind of fun. And then the the point of the challenge was they heard some story, or, or they said that you know, all oh, the military had come, and you know, they had ransacked this place, and they had supplies that you need to get, and needed to get like a canteen and a knife and a uh, something else, and they basically had to run one at a time into this house and search it for these items and bring it back to their tribe. And first tribe to bring back all three items wins. But, you know, there was an item for each people, uh, for each tribe in this one house, and they were going in there. And, you know, then Richard goes in there, and, you know, the first item that was grabbed by his tribe was a knife, and he went in there and immediately grabbed another knife. Right, so the the challenge, <laughs> they end up winning by uh, by default because uh, Toggy screwed up. Um but but like you were saying about uh, the setup for that challenge, what was so funny in that first season is like every challenge, especially pre-merge, had to have some setup for it. Like there was some story behind it. Like <laughs> plane went yeah. down. Like you were stuck in a tree. Like this had to happen. Or yeah. I, there, oh God. There was always some like theatrical thing behind it, and a lot of those early ones, they were they they felt the need to be creative. How to obtain the immunity idol? You know, Jeff couldn't just hold it over like that one. It kind of came up from the floor. That one they had to paddle out to Snake Island, and they kind of had this like long shot of slow motion shots. They're battling these snakes to get this uh, the immunity idol. So uh, good stuff back in Borneo. <laughs> I forgot how cheesy that season was. Some of the little things like that. That's funny. Oh, that great. Yeah, you're right. That great shot when they're going to Snake Island, and then they have the camera like on the ground, and there's like Richard and Rudy like you know using paddles or whatever to, like, shoo away the camera, which is just in among the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> We've lodged the immunity eye up next to Rudy's prostate. Go find it. Here's a scope. And then there was yeah. a, then, uh, the challenge in uh, episode three when... Uh, when Kelly and Colleen were hanging in the trees or something, they'd say, go, go retrieve your immunity I- idol. It's hanging in the tree like Colleen or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I made a noise because I remember that challenge, the whole build a stretcher and then you have to get to the person uh, that was parachuted down. You're right. It was just insane setups for those challenges. 
you know, that's something that I think Survivor kind of misses now is just the cheesiness factor. Like, I think it takes itself a little seriously now. It was really kind of a goofy show, some of those setups. You're right. The, the setups were weird. Um, and, and again, uh, I think uh, very early on we had our gross food challenge, which was eating the bug larvae, which in subsequent seasons of gross food challenges doesn't seem so awful. But still, seeing these people look at a, a bowl of, of, a, of a squiggling, you know, worm that looked pretty damn gross, mm-hmm. you know, and, and figuring out whether or not they needed to eat it. It was a uh, it was it was an interesting moment. It wasn't so fear factor like here. This is, you know, 10,000 year old goat testicle. But still, it was, you know, this is a bug larvae and it's live and you have to eat it or else you lose go um jay um excuse me the correct term for that is butok bug larvae is not specific enough oh man did i just lose the challenge in all stars yeah you did not <laughs> get the point on that one. Oh, sorry i guess i'll go make a porno you know what's funny about that paul that you bring that up every time i hear jeff say it it's butok with a k but if you look at the way they spell it in the book it's always butod with a d so i don't know what the actual real name of that is Jeff Rose probably pulled that one out of his ass at the All-Star yeah. Challenge. I'm drunk, it's Bootad. And then, you know, and going on, there again, with, with fun setups, they had the challenge uh, midway through where they set up like a military-grade obstacle course that they had to run, where like they ran through there and then they had to, you know, uh, go through some high-stepping and then they had to like crawl and dig. And, you know, the setup for that challenge was they had actual military people come to each base Mm-hmm. And look really awkward and say, "Hi, I'm 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 in full dress, and here's a note. Uh, they did something. You're gonna go there, and you're gonna fucking run through this thing." And have well, fun. and okay, and something here I'll throw out here, kind of you know, throwing going back to talking about uh, producer um, um, interference. Well, first in going to this challenge, uh, Rudy makes his famous comment about uh, maybe he can run faster than one of the girls. Uh-huh. Um, before the challenge, but you have to wonder. So during this whole challenge here, uh, Toggy's allowed to sit out one person while Pagong is allowed to sit out two people. Hmm, who's Toggy going to sit out? Probably Rudy, so they have a fighting <laughs> chance there. So, uh, I mean, it was it was brilliant because you, you wanted those tribes to go in, you know, even, you know, 5-5 five, five to the merge. So, uh, uh, another little uh, a questionable activity going on there. Speaking of Rudy, what I love about that whole scene is the military guys come to his camp, you know, and mili- you know, Rudy's military also. And what's the first thing Rudy wants to tell his military buddies? We got a queer here. <laughs> yes. I love That's Rudy. fantastic. The first instinct, you know, your soldier buddies are here. The first line of defense is make sure they know that there's a queer. <laughs> there's a queer. He's running bare ass everywhere. <laughs> yes. Again, Rudy, America's sweetheart. You know, there's a lot of challenges that they don't do nowadays, and and some of them I miss, and some of them I understand. You know, we got to move on. You know, with the the fire making challenge is always a fun one that I enjoyed in the uh, mm-hmm. uh, early seasons, where you know you had to not not just make like a little fire, uh, you know, like a tribal council or something like that. It was you literally had to like run into the forest and grab a bunch of sticks and make like a couple foot high fire uh-huh. to cut the rope. And Richard won that one. Uh, so you know, there there were some fun uh, kind of challenges there. Um, you know, and then uh, I'd like to talk a little bit, just talk about, you know, the, the, the hands on the idol challenge that last uh, the final three challenge. That was great. In fact, it bugs me that they don't do a challenge like that to end the season anymore. I mean, they still do every once in a while, but not every season. And I just love those endurance challenges. Those are some of the most epic scenes in Survivor history, like the one in Africa later, the one in Palau, of course. Just those endurance challenges are crazy because it's just who wants it more. And I, I just I love that they ended Borneo that way. It was just perfect. 
I, I think for every season, that last challenge should be, like, you're killing yourself. Who wants it the most goes mm-hmm. to the end. Not some, you know, for a while there, they kind of got into doing a lot of, like, concentration-type challenges, like, stuff you have to really keep your mind on. Now they don't even give a shit at all. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, we'll do an obstacle course here. Why not? Final challenge. So, you know, that, that, that's an epic way to, you know, to, to have a challenge that made sense. In those early seasons, you had the second-to-last challenge was a, quite, was a challenge where you're asked about your fellow tribe mates, your knowledge of what happened in the game. That last challenge was who wants it the most, and it made sense. That was perfect. That was the perfect ending to that season. They had to, you know, dress up in the, uh, you know, put the paint on, put the little uh, garb on or whatever, and then go out there and, you know, salute their their fallen uh, heroes, and then go out there and and do something and you know that was endurance based, and it was it was grueling. Ooh, what I also love about that scene, it just reminded me, um, as they're walking through the torches, I think there's two spelling errors they make on the torches. I believe they spell Sonia's name wrong. Sonia, yeah. And uh, I think Stacy's one, they, they spelled it wrong, too. And <laughs> yeah. there, there might have been another one in there, too, I can't remember. But uh, just good, good, good job there on their, uh, their uh, Pier 1 Tiki torches they threw together there. Well, this is well what, what, what you didn't know about that, Paul, was that they weren't planning to do it. But then Sue got voted out, and they were like, well, we need to do something. And they were like, hey, Sue, do you want to help us real quick with this, uh, you know, with, with these name tags? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was going to spell the names one way, but I'm not. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not. This um, one is Sona's. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Hey, the hands in the idol challenge was good. It was it was a good endurance challenge. I always thought that was a fun end to the season. And then it kind of showed us again. It was something that we didn't appreciate till later. And again, when if someone just you know if they if they if they're coming into Survivor now and they're they've seen some episodes and they see immunity idols and you know blindsides and all of this stuff going on, they're going to look back at Borneo and they're going to look at that final three challenge and Richard stepping down from the challenge and just go, oh yeah, well you know, and they're going to do all these complications that obviously Richard was thinking. Of, mm-hmm. but at the time you we were we were watching it and Richard stepped down and you're like oh my god what are you doing? Yeah, that's the sound of America cheering. Yay, Richard's gonna get voted out. And then it's like, wait a minute, no, he's not. No, he's not. I mean, he he sat there and said it. He's like, look, if Rudy wins, Rudy's gonna take me because Rudy's Rudy. And if Kelly wins, she's no way in hell she's taking Rudy because she's gonna get her ass kicked. So <laughs> you know, and he laid it out, and I was sitting there going like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like this is this is like from Mars. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say one thing. That whole, you know, the whole final challenge was based around them walking across the hot coals, you know, to prove their worth and like to become men or whatever, which was so much more impressive until I watched the Penn and Teller bullshit episode on walking across coals about how it's almost physically impossible to hurt your feet doing that. (laughs) So it's much less impressive the more you learn about walking across coals. I'll just say that. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, and Rudy and then, you know, Rudy just laps in judgment he he takes his hand off the idol kelly votes him out and then you know his that's his that's his that's his comment on the final tribal council everyone's up there talking he says i just want to say that i wasted i i blew a million bucks by taking my hand off the idol see ya <laughs> and you're like well you know way, way to tell it like it is but those endurance challenges i think one of the reasons they don't do that as much anymore is because it's the final three versus the final two you know uh the final with the final two, if you win immunity at three, you then vote out the person that you don't want to sit next to in the final tribal council. I mean, that is all the power. That is not only ensuring that you make the finals, but you are then picking the person you go with. And so it was extra fun. It was the who wants it. You gotta you gotta dig. Yeah, we'll get into the final two versus final three later. I'm sure we all have strong opinions on that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, you know, and, and, and all of that. So, so a lot of those early challenges. Uh, and I also wanted to bring up, uh, uh, it's something that's been kind of documented, but it's the, the importance and the funness of that 2-2 tie at the final four of tribal council vote. Yeah, to this day, I still don't know why Sue switched her vote or Kelly switched her vote. To this day, I'm not entirely sure. They've never really explained it because there was really no consequence to them that being a 2-2 tie. Right. And, you know, it's been documented that uh, uh, that they didn't really have a tiebreaker in place at that point. Like, you know, uh, they they got in for the tie and then they sat there and said, oh, my God, they're tied. What are they going to do? And I think Burnett was just like, well, they'll just keep voting until a tie is broken. <laughs> yeah. And that would have been that would have been some gripping television to see, you know, two hours of going back and counting the votes. <laughs> yeah. We stay here until Rudy dies. Yeah, that's the thing. It's I mean, I have nothing to say on that because I, I don't know what would have happened. That's one. I don't know how many takes it took until she switched her vote. Did they vote like six, seven times and we just never saw it on TV? But it seems odd to me she would switch her vote the second time where there was no consequence not to switch votes. It's never been fully explained and uh, uh, in that sense. But, yes, they vote and then they go back and then she votes out uh, Sue and basically alienates Sue from her, you know, which, uh, you know, way to go, Kelly. So, you know, there, there was that going on. But, yeah, it was uh, they didn't have things in place. And, again, you have to chalk it up to the growing pains. They they didn't really anticipate a tie, or they basically said, well, if there's a tie, they'll just yeah. persuade their case real quick. Someone will revote real quick. No problem, right? <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. And then uh, the last thing I wanted to bring up is uh, just, again, a, a survivor staple. We, we're getting these things going on in the first season. We get our our – letters from our videos from home and, and Greg and just the most epic video from home ever. And the fact that Jenna didn't get a video from home. And then one thing we got was we didn't get all the loved ones out there to get going and crying, but Sean won a, a, a reward challenge and he got to go out on this yacht and he brought Richard with him. And then on the yacht is Sean's dad. Who's like dressed up as the boat captain. <laughs> hey little buddy. <laughs> oh my God. Someone explain this scene to me. I tried to block that scene out. I, I, <laughs> that was just a weird scene. I mean, it was supposed to be heartwarming and touching. And I know in his book, Burnett talks about that as being one of the most important moments of the season. But it's like, it's fucking Sean. No one cares. <laughs> you know, after those, uh, after those, uh, the first two seasons with uh, awkward one-person love, love one visits, that's when they realized, okay, next time we the love one's got to bring them all out. Yeah, we don't want to see Colby showering with his mom watching. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, man. And when we get to Australia, we've probably got a lot of things to say about that. But, oh. you know, as, as, as fun as the Colby's mom visited in Australia, let's not talk about just the awkwardness of the setup of the Sean one. Like Sean's, you know, Sean's a weird, awkward kind of guy. And that's all fun. And Sean's dad seemed like a nice human being. They, they didn't seem to have some sort of weird father-son relationship. But just the fact that they go on a yacht and then they're like, hey, let's introduce you to the captain. And then they get up to the wheel. <laughs> and behind the wheel is Sean's dad who's dressed up like <laughs> Captain Stubing. <laughs> and he's out there, like, you know, piloting the boat. He's like, oh, hey, Dad. Oh, you're, on, you're piloting the boat. It's like, you know that your dad fucking pilots boats out in the middle of Borneo? Like, what kind of family is this? That's funny. I never thought about it that way. But <laughs> it's it, it just Sean's reaction to seeing his dad isn't what you think it's going to be. It always cracks me up. It's He's somewhat surprised. He's pretty happy, but it's not really delirious. He just kind of takes his yeah. stride. He's just hey, like, oh, hey, Dad, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, I just ran into you in Borneo on a boat. What's up? Yeah, and then, like, he brings Richard up. He's like, hey, Richard, look, it's the captain. It's my dad. Hey, Dad, this is my older gay benefactor. <laughs> like, what? 
this isn't great expectations. You leave your Charles Dickens out of this. <laughs> That's great. I love that scene. Yeah, again, just growing pains. I didn't really know how to do a loved one visit yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about these loved one visits in later seasons, and hey, loved one visits are fun, and boy, there are some awkward ones. And uh, I'm sure that as we chronicle these seasons, we're going to get into some really fun ones. But let's not discount just the totally awkwardness of, you know, Sean's dad being the de facto captain of the ship, and then Sean taking it in stride, and then introducing Richard to him, like, hey, Richard, here's the captain. It's my dad. Yeah, Yeah. he's captain now. (laughs) You know, if, if, if I see my dad driving a boat one more time, I'll think he's a boat captain. Yeah, exactly. His dad's his dad's vote is the Ardvark, A A R. Funny. But man, oh man, just if only Greg's sister would have been the loved one, that would have been epic. That would have been the best moment in TV ever. If Greg had still been there and Greg's sister would have come out and they could have done incest jokes live in front of Rudy. Beautiful. Or maybe just made out. <laughs> Uh, that was any, that was the last thing I wanted to talk about. Anything else we got on the hopper? All right. Um, we're kind of going to wind up the show here. I got a bunch of, uh, list uh, questions from listeners who liked the first one. They wrote in specific questions. They wanted to ask us for the second one. So, uh, Damian Crawford wrote in a, where are they now type of thing for the Borneo cast might be fun. So I guess jail. We'll do a, yeah, jail. But they, uh, one of them didn't pay his taxes. Guess which one? <laughs> So, yeah, just go down the list. What do we got? Sonia. Um, I know Sonia is, uh, she's on Facebook quite a bit. She's in the Bay Area. She's still involved in a lot of charity work, and she's doing fine as far as I've heard. She goes to a lot of Survivor events. She's part of the Bay Area crowd, and she goes to a lot of the fan events. So, yeah, she's still involved in the Survivor community. Which is awesome, I think. Yeah, that's cool. And I mean, she's one of the icons that people don't really talk about, but the first boot ever. A fortunate first boot. I mean, you know, obviously some first boots later episodes, you know, had had a worse experience with it. But to have the first episode, to have a first boot like Sonia, who just loved the experience and, you know, still talks good about the show, I think is good for the show in general. Absolutely. Yeah. And she never had any hard feelings towards anybody, I don't think. No. Uh, BB. We all know what happened <laughs> to BB. Yeah. Unfortunately, BB uh, vacillates between being dead and alive, last I hear. <laughs> No. The joke is everyone talks about BB being dead. They were making jokes about him dying way back in Borneo. As far as I know, he's still alive. No one has heard a peep from him in 10 years. No one seems to know anything about BB. I'm guessing he's still around there and he's still cantankerous and still very rich, but I don't know. But that's really the only update I have. Does he still wash his clothes in the washing bucket? I know. I, I, I hear he still uh, visits Ramona in her little hut, though. <laughs> I think the best thing about BB ultimately is the, not just that he had glasses out there, but he had those old person glasses where like they were like the thin bifocals, and then they had like that chain that comes down from like that <laughs> librarian chain. I'm, I'm telling you, that's a look. <laughs> that's funny. All right, so who's our third boot? Stacy. Uh, legally, by law, we're not really allowed to mention Stacy because she clearly signed some kind of non-disclosure agreement after she sued CBS. So. No one knows anything other about Stacy other than she's still in the Bay Area and she's still a lawyer. And I will tell you this from firsthand experience, if you send her an email thanking her for being a part of Survivor, she will not write you back. <laughs> anything else on Stacy? I'm, I'm assuming nobody else has any more interaction with her. Nope. I, I will inter- haven't written her an email, but uh, don't, don't plan on doing that either. <laughs> well, yeah, spoiler, she won't write you back. All right, uh, Ramona. What's going on with Ramona? I know, Paul, you were a big Ramona head back in the day. 
<laughs> I have no idea what happened to Ramona. I hope she's not taking up too much room in a hut somewhere. <laughs> I used her in my in my, one of my uh, all-star stories, my Grease story. But other than that, I don't know anything about her. And even then, I didn't know anything about her. I had to research her for my story, and nobody seemed to know anything about her. So I don't think she's involved in Survivor. If she is, I haven't heard about it. As, as far as I know, she's still a chemist out in, I think, New Jersey somewhere. Who knows? She had a real touching scene where she said she uh, you formed a relationship with uh, Jenna Lewis out there and said, you know, I've never really had a white friend before. Uh-huh. And, you know, Jenna could be my first white friend, and then they voted her out in the yeah. uh, next episode. So, you know, hopefully Ramona, you know, may, 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 maybe that didn't scar you off of white friends forever. I don't know. Yeah, if we have listeners out there who are white and want to be her friend, tread carefully. <laughs> She's been burned. Exactly. Uh, who else we got? Dirk. Uh I just I was just reading Dirk's deposition the other day, the one where he was part of Stacy's lawsuit. He um, what did he do? He was a motivational speaker traveling around the country. Yes. He spoke with a lot of youth groups. He coaches basketball. Um, I don't know if he pursued acting. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I'm pretty sure he still does a lot of spiritual work and uh, I'm guessing public speaking. These people are so normal from the first season. Yeah, I know what happened. I thought people were all supposed to be on professional, become professional reality stars, and be on six different seasons. Uh, Joel, I can, I can give you an update on Joel. I actually, um, I wrote an article about Joel a while back, and his girlfriend at the time wrote me to say, "Thank you for writing about Joel. You know, he doesn't really do Survivor anymore. He's involved in his business. He, he, he's thankful that people still remember him, and he's thankful that people appreciated him on Survivor. But he really wants nothing to do with reality TV. He's moved on, so he's just he's out of the loop now." It's amazing how much people saw Survivor, and some of those people really catapulted it to greater fame. Dr. Sean, Colleen made the movie with Rob Schneider. I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but so many people from that first season also kind of went the exact opposite other way. You know, yeah. don't don't have, want anything to do with the, uh, the Survivor community or just the reality television community or fame in general. They did it. They're done. And that, that's a really interesting kind of uh, – uh, parallel there between the catapulting to greater fame and, you know, catapulting away from it as well. Yeah, and I don't know if that's so much that the first season was made up of people that didn't want to be TV stars or if it's made up of people who might have wanted to be TV stars and were so turned off by how manipulated and fake Survivor kind of was based on what they expected. I think they might have got turned off. I think it's a combination kind of of the two. Sure. Uh, who's next? Gretchen. Anybody heard from Gretchen recently? No, I have not. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never had any contact with her over the years. Um, I'm assuming she just went back and went back to teaching and being a mom. I'm assuming she just went back to her normal life. I never heard anything really about her. I know she kind of hosted some of the previews for future for, uh, like Survivor 2 and 3. I remember she was still kicking around there, but I haven't heard from her in years. I don't really have a have a, a big wish list of people of survivors i'd like to meet in real life but uh, if i ever run across gretchen i would like to just thank her for her role on that show she was uh she was a fascinating character and i think that she would just be an awesome person to know in real life that'd be good you could be her first white friend that well you know everyone's <laughs> got to have a goal <laughs> uh greg our old friend greg i know people on the internet have kind of tracked down greg in recent years it's it's a rumor that, you know, he disappeared into the mountains and he did nothing or he just kind of became a hiker or a traveler like Kane and Kung Fu. But in truth, I know Greg works for an energy company. I don't want to say where, but a couple of people on the Internet have tracked him down. 
I can guarantee you if you write him about Survivor, he won't write you back. I've never done it myself, but I just know enough about him wanting not to be part of reality TV. He's not going to write you, so don't bug him. But yeah, he works for an energy company, and he uh, he's Greg. That's all I can say. <laughs> Let's see who's after. Is he still getting mad at people for counting their chickens before they hatch? I'm assuming he is. I mean, that's the kind of anger issues that don't go away. So he's probably still got issues with that. And he and his sister are, of course, married now. <laughs> oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful <laughs> yeah. to hear. You know, it's nice when it works out for two young people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, who's next? Jenna Lewis? Was she the next one? We all know what happened to her. Yeah, Jenna, she made some, some home movies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened to Jenna. I'm assuming she's some sort of actress. I know she's popped up in movies before. I'm guessing she's somewhere in L.A. doing Hollywood stuff. Who knows? Jenna, I think, is she the first person that we've gone through in the boot order that uh, returned onto Survivor All-Stars? I believe that would be correct. All right. And uh, she uh, attacked that game with a vigor. She did. Which is funny, by the way, that in Burnett's book about the first season, he talked about how how all the producers expected Jenna to be the big villain in, in Borneo. They were surprised the claws never came out because they saw that kind of personality in her. So when it happened in All-Stars, we'll get to this more of this later, but it wasn't a surprise to me because I'd read the book and they all said, oh, yeah, this is what Jenna's really like in real life. But to a lot of viewers, I think they were quite shocked to see that side of her come out the second time around. I certainly was. All right, who's after Greg here? We can go into uh, Jervis next? Correct. Jer- all right. Jervis. Yeah, Jervis. Um, Jervis, I, I have a friend who just went to an open audition casting call for Survivor the other day, and Jervis was there. She took a picture with him, so he still represents Survivor, I guess works with CBS somehow. Looks exactly the same. You wouldn't even know any time has passed, so he's still doing the same thing, I'm assuming. It's good to hear. I always like Jervis. Is that for Jervis? Colleen? Yes. If anybody can find Colleen and give us an update, you will be the most beloved person in the Survivor community. No one has heard from Colleen in, what, 11, 12 years now? She has no internet profile whatsoever. She has no no uh, face, no voice on the internet anywhere. It's like she just suddenly disappeared. I, I know she's working as a production assistant somewhere, I think in New York. That's the last I heard. But other than that, you're not going to find her anywhere on the internet. She's completely hidden herself. Again, looking back at Survivor with these, you know, future kind of colored glasses that is going on, uh, and, and maybe one of the reasons why Colleen is ending up on the number 90s in some people's list of top characters of all time is that fact. But after Survivor, after Survivor one ended, I mean, Richard obviously became super famous. I mean, they were all famous because they were on Survivor. I mean, it was just a media zoo. But even afterwards, Richard was famous, obviously, because he won and, you know, he got to do guest appearances, this, that, and the other thing. But Colleen was uh, the love interest opposite Rob Schneider in a smarmy comedy movie. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just funny because... Knowing what you know about Colleen and how much she must have respected a movie like The Animal, how she would probably never watch that in real life. I think it's funny that she, of all people, ended up in that movie, cashed a quick paycheck, and then disappeared. <laughs> right. Like, like her, her fame afterwards was huge. It was meteoric. And, you know, when people are just like, ah, oh, Colleen, whatever. It's like, no, not Colleen, whatever. Colleen was huge. And then she went on to become a love interest in a movie, which, I mean, I just sat there and said, someone on Survivor is, you know, going to make a movie and a, a really shitty movie at that. And, uh, you know, then it happened and now she's gone and just no trace of her. And, you know, that's just how it goes, I suppose. Yeah, and it's funny, and she got that role only because she was Colleen. It's not like yeah. she was even an actress. 
Like, right. oh, we just want to cast Colleen as our lead in a major motion picture, which is just insane that that would happen. Uh, okay, who's the, who's after uh, Colleen? What have we got? Dr. Sean next? Sean. Yeah, he uh, he did really well for himself. He wrote some books. He's been a TV neurologist. He's worked for news shows. He, of all the first season cast, I think was the most successful. He did actually pretty well for himself despite his reputation. Well, and if, if anyone out there um, keeps up at all with the RTV Zone, which is a kind of another video podcast that uh, that former survivors go on um, and, and talk about the current season, he actually popped up on the show a couple weeks ago. Wow. And uh, doesn't watch Survivor anymore, but still came on the show and uh, announced that he was getting married in the next couple of weeks. So I'm assuming about now, whatever, he, he, he's married now. And uh, yeah, seems to be doing fine without Survivor. All right, good for him. I always like Sean. I think we talked about this last time. He gets a bum rap. Is his fiance marrying him for his expert fishing skills? <laughs> I was going to say for the nipple ring. No, she's marrying into a bowling alley. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, as we all do. I like how we immediately say that Sean gets a bum rap, and then we immediately start trashing Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that, you, know, you not to plug Mario uh, too much, even though this podcast is sponsored by the thefunny115.com. That's funny. <laughs> One, but uh, <laughs> you know, you, you did write about Sean at length, and especially some of the things. But I mean, the Super Bowl two thousand, it was funny then. It's funny now. It's always going to be funny. <laughs> Super I mean, it, there's nothing not funny about Super Bowl two thousand. Not just the fact that he had it, just the fact that you know he could didn't catch any fish. He looks at the camera and says, "I don't know. The pole's good. Maybe it's just overfished <laughs> in this remote fucking island in the middle of nowhere." Now I like the fact that Super Bowl is basically a piece of bamboo with string on it. Yes. <laughs> Super Paul, <laughs> the wave and, of the and, future. And then it just relates to that under underrated quote by Sue, where she's like, "Well, Sean did that, but you know, Sean is dumb." <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, who else we got uh, catching up with? Who's final four? So we got Sue, Sue, Rudy, Kelly, Richard. Uh, Sue was uh, assaulted by Richard's penis. That's the last I heard from her. She either left the show, she got paid some money. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, I'm guessing we will not be seeing Sue at any point on Survivor again. No, I think she's past her prime. Yes. Speaking of past prime, we got Rudy. <laughs> uh, Rudy, I mean, I like to t- make fun of Rudy. He's, he's a great character. I love the guy. I will say, in all seriousness, his his wife died a couple years ago, Rudy. Mm-hmm. They were married, what, 50, 60 years? A long time. So Marge died. I've heard that Rudy is kind of, you know, kind of getting old, kind of losing it now, and it's kind of sad, and it's... And, it, you know, it's just he was old then. He's not younger now. He's just an old guy. And I wish him all the best. I loved Rudy on the show. And, uh, yeah, he's still with us. But I, I'm guessing he's not in any condition to go to any events or anything anymore. No, but, you know, what a what good, you know, third third part of your life. You know, you have, like, your youth. And then obviously he had his extensive military career, and then as an old man, he gets to, you know, just become a beloved figure and survivor. That's that's just that's just amazing. And you know, you know, he he had a lot of vitality on the show, and that's 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 great that it's got captured as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kudos kudos to a, a survivor for uh, for dedicating that one episode, whatever it was, in Survivor Gabon to uh, to Marge. It was uh, kind of cool that they did that. Yeah, that was neat. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see who do we got next. Kelly Wigglesworth. She's one I've I've heard she pops in and out of the Survivor community every so often. I was actually on a podcast with her a while a couple years ago where she was one of the other guests, but I don't know much about what happened to her. Maybe one of you guys do. Well, I heard a rumor that she gives blowjobs for sandwiches. 
Well, I always I heard. I always heard she never watched. I, she didn't watch the show she was on. She didn't watch any shows after that. But wanted to be on All Stars, or wanted to because she had. I remember one time way back when hearing something how she's like, "Oh, I want to play with you, Lex," or with some podcast or something. I can't remember what it was. And uh, I thought that was that was always interesting that she kept up enough to know like uh, uh, who these people were, met them at events and such, but uh, didn't watch the show. Interesting. I always liked Kelly. Uh, there was the the phrase, and it was it was how I talked when I was younger. I was in my you know late teens, early twenties when Survivor Borneo came out uh, back in the days, and there, it was the scene. And I, I talked about it uh, in our. Earlier podcast, it was it was the challenge where they had the rafting, and Kelly, being the river raft guide, got her ass just handed to her by Jervis of all people. And uh, you know the the challenge ended, and you know Sue and them were pepping her up, basically going, you know it was hard. There was no way you're going to do it, and she's just like, yay, go fucking Kelly. <laughs> and that just is like the turn of phrase I would use back then. So it's you know a good a good snapshot of the late nineties there. Um, yeah, and then you got of course Richard now. Where are they now? I can tell you physically, as of last week, he, he came out to Reality Rally, which is a uh, a uh, big reality fundraiser here in California. I actually saw him. I walked right by him about 10 times. I never actually introduced myself. Uh, he's out of jail now. I'm assuming he's still appealing some stuff. But, yeah, I met him in person. He looks exactly the same. He's incredibly tall. He's very intimidating if you don't know him. But, yeah, he's, I've heard he's a real fun guy to if you ever meet him at an event and say hi to him. But I've I've never personally interacted with him, but yeah, he's out now. He's back in the real world. We didn't talk about it too much, and, and just before we get it, and I think this is a good place to go, it's the whole Richard tax thing. I mean, we did talk about how Richard was threatening to blow the whistle on the fact that he <laughs> saw other survivors being slipped food and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, it, it's a real interesting uh, kind of conundrum with Richard and, and, the, and the tax thing, really. Yeah, you know, I, I've read... Some of the depositions or some of the interviews where he said, yeah, I, I, or he insinuates that he caught the producers kind of bending the rules. He threatened to blow the whistle. They said, oh, well, you know, if, if you win, we'll pay your taxes. Now, I think that's his argument, or at least recently. I don't want to get too much into this because I don't know all the specifics, but mm-hmm. it's, it's almost impossible to talk about the Richard Tax stuff without the was survivor rigged stuff because they, they kind of seem to go hand in hand and no one's talking on the inside. All I ever hear are kind of the rumors. So it's, it, this is one of those subjects I'm real kind of nervous to talk about because I don't really know the facts, but there's clearly something shady was going on behind the scenes. I don't know if it was Richard or CBS, but something goofy is going on there. This isn't as simple as, oh, Richard just is too dumb to pay taxes. I just can't believe it was that easy. Well, my my whole take on the issue is, um, you know, we know that Joel, you know, chased a snake out of the Pagan camp. Soon afterwards, he was voted off. Uh-huh. We saw what Richard. We saw what Richard did with that snake, and. Um, Maybe this was the island coming back to get him. <laughs> yes. I'm sure. The island has a nice roundabout way of revenge. It really does. I don't know I don't know all the ins and outs of the taxes, and again, I don't want to comment commentate this that I don't know exactly everything that's going on there. I do know that the definition of a game show and whether Survivor fits into it is, you know, some of those uh, FCC laws is real kind of shady and I I don't wouldn't even want to pretend to be an expert on all that ins and outs and the law and whatnot. It just is really interesting to me because ultimately uh, Richard, you know, didn't pay taxes on his million dollar wins. It's really interesting, you know, just in the sense that, you know, he thought there was shady this, that, CBS, I don't want to get involved. But at at the same time, the finale of Survivor Borneo got like a 30 some odd rating, which, you know, translates into a a shade less than 60 million viewers, you know, 60 million Americans 
saw Richard win a million dollars and not to report it on your taxes. I mean, my God. <laughs> he's not we Russell. Saw you yeah. Win it. yeah, it's not like he's Russell. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, let's go to a couple more. We only got about 10 or 15 more minutes. I'm going to go down a bunch of reader questions, see how many we can get in here. Uh, Chris Donahue asks, I'd like to hear people's thoughts on how certain people from the first season, especially Greg and Colleen, don't want anything to do with the show anymore. Because there unfortunately seems to be quite a few. Why do you think that is? Um, this is something I think we talked about earlier, that just the first season's cast, a lot of people just weren't, weren't really fame whores. They weren't really in it to be TV stars. And combine that with, I think a lot of people were disenchanted by kind of the way it went down, the way it was presented, the way what you saw wasn't what would happened in the game. I think that's what contributes to it more than anything. It's just this, these weren't people that all went into it wanting to be TV stars. Well, and in the fact that, you know, Survivor is this kind of game show for a million dollars and, and, and nothing's really like it. But if you're looking at other game shows, I mean, other than that guy, Ken Jennings, who went on Jeopardy and won like a billion trillion dollars, like, do you really remember lots of Jeopardy contestants? I mean, you know, I don't think these people thought that they would become so famous from doing that show. And even if they did have the foresight, very few of them really wanted to capitalize on that. And, you know, we are podcasting and a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast are part of this survivor community where they like to, you know, friend survivors on Facebook and Twitter and uh, go to these reality rallies and go to these survivor meet and greet events. I mean, none of that existed back then. I right. mean, and, and the fact that any of them thought that that would exist is not true either. So, you know, a lot of people now they get cast on Survivor and they're like, well, at the very least, I'll be able to, you know, go to these events and sign some autographs and, you know, get a couple of appearance fees and stuff like that. And that was just unheard of back then. Yeah, these are just normal people. You know, how many of them were actually from California? I mean, it. They were just. They could be your next door neighbor. Yeah, but one other thing that I wanted to bring up is that I don't think that people are. A lot of people are aware of how nasty kind of the Stacey Stillman stuff got towards the end of that season, where she was threatening lawsuits. And a lot of people don't know that there was almost no reunion show at the end of Borneo because Stacey correctly figured out that they'd only they were being paid for 13 episodes, not 14, and they didn't contractually have to go to the reunion show. And she tried to form a union where you know they held out for like. $20,000 for one more episode because she didn't think legally they should have had to do a reunion show. So it got really nasty be between Stacy, between CBS, between some of the contestants who had to take sides. It was, there was a lot of nastiness going on behind the scenes of that last, at the end of that first season. And I wouldn't surprise me at all if that chased a lot of people away from wanting to be part of the, the TV world after that. Sure. Uh, let's go. Another question here. Uh, uh, Sheehan Inchidia said, Mario, you mentioned your Australia trip and your experiences essay, and I'd love to and how they were really into the show in Australia. Can you put that in somewhere? I'd love to hear more. This is really quick because it's it's it's, it's a personal anecdote I have, but I happened to be in Australia in the summer of 2000 during uh, Survivor when it was airing, and what was funny to me is that it was a huge show over in Australia. I I didn't anticipate it would be such a big show over there. I thought it would kind of just be American, but it was a big deal over there. And one thing that I always remember is that the way they viewed some of the stuff on Survivor was different than the way it was being viewed in America. And this has always stuck with me, and it will always to my dying day, that I remember there were some kids we were talking to, my, my, my wife and our little daughter, and they were talking about how the, the BB episode, episode two, had just aired the night before or something like that in Australia. 
And these kids and these parents in Australia were horrified that the Pagongs would vote out this nice old man, Bibi. And it was just, it was so backwards from how in America it was presented, how in America it was, oh, they're the cool kids, they're fun. And then this mean, cranky old man's trying to set rules and they got rid of him because he had no business being there. But in Australia, it was just the opposite from all the people I talked to. They're like, well, this is a nice old grandpa. He was doing all the work and these ungrateful kids didn't listen to him. And, oh, we hate those Pagongs. We like the Toggies. And it just always cracked me up how it was differently perceived in Australia and America, just the way people looked at that BB vote. Wow, interesting. We're Americans. Don't like rules. Don't like crotch shield men. Leave us alone. Exactly. We hate old people. And also, everyone in Australia, how are you still on the earth? How have you not fallen off? Exactly. Okay, um, this is a question from Adam Case. Uh, uh, It'd be nice if you could talk about the contrast between Jeff Probe's influence between then and now. Like, how much influence did he have on the show now versus, or then versus now? Oh, Jeff Probst. I mean, it, watch Pagong in Borneo and watch Jeff Probst. What a young baby he was back then. <laughs> yeah, he was He was almost incidental to the season. It was like you just showed up for the taping of the tribal councils, and that was really it. And even then, you didn't get the sense he had any authority over anybody. He was just kind of refereeing stuff. Well, so he, didn't, he didn't look authoritative. I mean, yeah. you know, now he's got, like, the hat, and he's got, you know, his, his button-up kind of short sleeve shirt, and he was wearing a version of that. But, I mean, he was, it, was, it was 1999. I apologize for fashion back then. I mean, his shirt was two sizes too big for him, and he was wearing, you know, those big jean shorts or just cargo shorts that were way flipping huge. I mean, he looked like a 20-something-year-old dude out there. I mean, it was just <laughs> ridiculous. And now, Paul, what do you think of Jeff's influence now? I mean, it's it's easy to jump on the band the bandwagon here about you know how how Jeff Probst is too involved with the show. I think it's a trend that has gone on for a long time. So I usually don't I usually don't uh, talk that much about it just because it, it pretty much speaks for itself. But you know, in those early years, he was really trying to find his niche, and I don't think it really is until I think you see it kind of towards the end of Marquesas going into Thailand, where you kind of really kind of see. Uh, uh, Jeff Probst really kind of standing his ground and, you know, kind of being a dick here and there, which I think, Mario, uh, haven't you said from the beginning you always thought Jeff Probst was kind of a dick? I always thought he was kind of a dick, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah, but it was funny how people just didn't like him in the early days. They just made fun of him constantly on the message boards. And now they make fun of him on the message boards, but it's because they just don't like him or don't like his influence. It's a whole different level of why people don't like him now. It's changed a lot. Well, and, but but at the same time, you know, there are things that he does that people don't like, but it's just because he's he's now an authoritative figure. You know, mm-hmm. as Survivor was finding its footing in those early days, so was Jeff. And Jeff has been, you know, Jeff is our one constant, you know, uh, through this whole uh, journey of Survivor that we've taken. And, uh, that you know, I think people take that really for granted. And, you know, those first, again, I always will tell people, you know, those first three seasons, Borneo, Australia, and Africa, is really Survivor getting its footing. And as Jeff does it, too. I mean, there's things he does that people wish he did now, like, you know, shut up more during challenges. But, I mean, there's a lot of things. You look at Jeff Probst in that Borneo season, he's kind of a train wreck. It's sort of fun. Yeah, it's true. It's, he, was, he was learning the game just like we were. Uh, here's a question from Douglas Woolack. Go back in time. Substitute average middling guy for Richard Hatch. Let the game run its course. Who wins? Would strategy have evolved at a different pace or maybe in a different direction? Do you think alliances would have happened naturally eventually? Yes. 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 I agree. I agree. It's, I don't think – I mean, Richard might have moved it up an episode or two or three, but eventually that would have happened because that's, that's the smart way to play. I don't think it really – 
I mean, not to say that to minimize Richard's win, but he was the guy who figured it out at this, just before someone else would have figured it out. Even uh, there were hints of Joel, you know, knowing that that was the way that the game should be run, you know, before they uh, wisely kicked him out before them. <laughs> yeah, very clever. But also Stacy. Stacy was also one of the alliance things. She wanted an all-girl alliance. It's one thing to think it, it's another to execute it. But yeah. you're right. If if no one had executed it and they had just pagonged willy-nilly all their way through the end of the season and someone random wins because they were just not fooling around. You mentioned Joel, you mentioned Stacy. People fought about the idea and even if no one could, you know, fully execute it because not only do you have an idea, but you know, you have to have people to go along with it. And if no one did, then nothing would have happened, but it would have been thrown out there. And then in season 2, uh, someone would have come up with it. I mean, it, it would have happened. I mean, it is how you play. Uh, it was just fortunate that they had people that not only thought of it, but actually did it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, <clears throat> that's the same answer I always give, too, that if alliances didn't happen in Borneo, they would have happened in Australia. It's just yes. there would have been a whole off-season for people to talk about Survivor, and people would have figured it out. Okay, here's a question from Carl Hageman, who asks, who has ever come closest to being the next Colleen? Do we yeah. want a serious answer, or do we want what do we want here? My serious answer would be nobody. Although Elizabeth, they tried to make her, but I don't think she really came close. But I don't think anybody's ever come close to Colleen. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, if you simplify it to the role of America's sweetheart, I think Elizabeth definitely fulfilled that role in the next season. But you know, mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier, Colleen is, was such a unique, you know, character and and a unique role that she played that that really wasn't something that you could. You know, repeat later on. All those, all these, you know, a lot of these people from the first season, you can't really create and make the new person of it. Now you get into it, and the show is so formalized. They just kind of, you know, they, they find that super fan, they find this guy, they find that girl. Which those early scenes, you can't really repeat those uh, those characters because they were so unique and it was such a different time. And to follow up, there's another question here: If Borneo had a fan favorite vote, would anyone would anyone have beaten Colleen? Maybe Rudy. Maybe. Yeah. That's maybe. about it. I don't. I mean, I think maybe Jervis could have come in third, or maybe Gretchen, but even they would have been far behind Colleen and Rudy. Yeah, I, I think Colleen would have won it. Do you agree because, with that? Oh, go ahead. I well, I think Colleen would have won it. I think Rudy was popular, but Rudy was popular in that Archie Bunker kind of way. It was mm-hmm. oh you, and you know we rooted for him to win because of the Toggy Four. He was the most likable of the Toggy Four, and so he kind of became America's pick to win. Yeah, uh, and he might have piggybacked on that, but I mean none of those Toggy were especially likable. And and then you had Colleen, who was Colleen. Well, yeah. Plus, you just would have got the sense that it would have meant a lot to Colleen that people really liked her. I mean, on the, on the reunion show, if they'd announced that, oh, Colleen, everyone loved you. Here's your you know, stamp of approval from America. I, I think she would have been genuinely touched despite her exterior, which probably would have cemented a lot of votes in her favor as opposed to Rudy, who really would have had no reaction. That's also true. Yeah. Um, let's see. Going down my questions here. Discuss the Joel Klug boot and why it was bullshit and how underrated of a player and character he is. Well, I'm pretty sure we've done that already. It's that's to me. That's the most ridiculous vote in Borneo. That one makes no sense. It's stupid. It was totally the the Pagan shot themselves in the foot, and Joel didn't do anything wrong. And the, I've never changed my mind on that one. Well, yeah, but in a way, it's a lesson for us to learn. And unfortunately, because 
we kind of focus a little bit more on Tagi and the Alliance. And that's kind of the main, you know, when we watch a season, it's what did we learn? What did we learn from the season about, you know, and, and was the style of play acceptable? Really in Pagong, it's all about, you know, the formations, the alliances, and, you know, forming a voting block. But the fact that Jervis could say a sexist quote and then deflect it completely off of him is a really interesting skill that they didn't really go into uh, uh, detail about, which is a shame in and of itself. Absolutely, yeah. There was a lot going on with Pagong that they never showed, and it leads to this impression, well, Pagong just wasn't playing. I'm like, well, no, once they figured out what the game was, they were playing, but it was too late. There's not much they could do. So, yeah, there's just it just became the story of Tagi destroys the Pagongs at that point. It also becomes into a, a sense of, did they want to play? You know, uh, mm-hmm. we, we saw Gretchen and, you know, Colleen and, and not so much Greg, but you can tell he was thinking, I think Greg did say it. Like a bunch of them said, well, if all you're going to do is just team up and, and vote people out one by one, I don't want to play that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't even that, you know, oh, they didn't figure out the game. They just, they saw the game and said, that's bullshit. I don't want to play that. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I got three more questions here we'll finish up on. Uh, number one is, where did the cast come from? How did they know to apply, or were they recruited? America. Yeah, exactly. There, there was an open casting call, I think, in Variety magazine, which is for a lot of young actors, a lot of show business people, and it just kind of this got passed around. Anybody who had experience in the outdoors or things like that were encouraged to apply. So it wasn't so much they were looking for TV types. They were looking for people who wanted an adventure. So that's really kind of unique with the first season. Right, which also would make sense for why a lot of them, you know, aren't part of this Survivor fan community afterwards because they were there for an adventure. These are the type of people who, you know, go on expedition to some country. They go hiking through the mountains. They do stuff just for the experience, not not to get on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got two more. We got one. Uh, Jeff Probst as a host. Where did he come from? Uh, I know that one. He was on VH1. He was on Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Um, he had TV experience, and they just moved him over. I don't know if there's any bigger story than that. Well, he's very – Jeff Probst loves to tell the story about how he heard they were casting the show. He heard it on the radio as he was driving to L.A., and he didn't know if they had a host or not, but he was determined that he was going to get an interview to be the host of that show. And through his persistence, he got an interview on that show and uh, made sure that he uh, became the host. All uh, right. I, I think, well, I think that Jeff Probst, uh, you know, and where did he come from? Uh, you know, why did he get hired and did he do a good job? I don't think that his Borneo performance as far as hosting a show is fantastic, but there are moments of brilliance there and uh, signs that Jeff Probst uh, is a good host. And, and you know, he talks, uh, he always likes to talk about how he and Burnett saw Richard in the tree uh, talking about the, oh, the, this, and Sue's like, ah, oh, you know, that's, corporate world's not going to work around here. That's all kind of bullshit. I thought that the, the, the scene that really kind of makes Jeff Probst, Jeff Probst is uh, the, the, the Jenna Lewis boot where, you know, the alphabet strategy is going on. And then he <laughs> yeah. holds up the one vote and says J for Jenna. It's like, Oh, dig. Well done, <laughs> sir. That was a great episode. I will give him credit for that. Cause he sold that moment. <clears throat> okay. Um, one last question here. This is from Cody Ross. This is a funny one. Settle once and for all, whether Rudy could beat BB in a fight. <laughs> this is funny because this is an old joke from from Survivor Sucks that there's a poster on there named Sir Crocodile who for the last five years will go on and on about how Rudy was short and how BB could kick his ass in a fight, which always cracks me up. I'm like, you know, Rudy was a Navy SEAL, right? You know, he's probably killed like 100 people in his life. So I will settle this once and for all, Sir Croc. I hate to say this, but you're an idiot. 
Rudy would so demolish BB in a fight, it wouldn't even be funny because Rudy has tasted blood. And once you taste blood, you can kill again. Doesn't matter how small he is. I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Two, two, well, two things. Rudy has friends. Don't forget that. <laughs> he has friends. And the second thing, uh, BB's dead. So, you know, there is that as well. Well, then you can't kill him. So this is a trick question. Well, they didn't say kill. It said oh, beat in a fight. Yeah, okay. Well you played. Can stand, I, I think you can stand over a grave with your fisticuffs out and go, ha-ha, winner. Dude, what are you, a fucking lawyer? Nice argument. <laughs> okay. No. And we'll finish off with one last question. I know the answer to this one. We'll just go around. Uh, someone just asked, runaway juror asked, the jury votes. Why Richard over Kelly? Is there anything Kelly could have done to beat Richard? Jay, how about I'll start with you. Um, I don't think very much. Um, Sue really buried her at the tribal council. And again, I think that I think that the thing about it was that you know Sue had that snakes and rats speak. And I think when Jervis went up, he basically said he thought he was going to vote for Richard, and yeah. then he switched to Kelly because Sue was you know so you know over the top in that speech and you know he didn't like it and you know there's that sort of stuff going on but you can see you know i think that kelly nobody in that toggy four liked kelly very much nope. you know and uh, and and they didn't vote for her and then there was greg and i think greg really did silently respect richard and it was never shown on tv and it was there and then not only did richard know that you know they had that fishing scene together where greg caught the urchin mm -hmm. i think that's uh, you know stuff where you can kind of see that sort of thing and again everyone talks about you know the complexities of survivor and these three first three seasons lay the groundwork and one of it is richard working the jury and it's in it, it, you know someone said hey who should be there instead of you guys you know that classic jury question and richard said i think greg should be here and it's uh, just a throw in his direction and it's brilliant absolutely how about you paul at the end of the day you win survivor by being liked by the others they liked richard they didn't like kelly if kelly would have been more likable from the beginning had a different personality maybe she would have had a better chance to win I agree. Yeah, see, that's that's my simple answer. Like, the jury votes for the person they can sleep well at night knowing they lost to, and they liked Richard. It might not be the edit you thought you saw. It might not be the way you thought of him at home, but people seem to, well, they might have been annoyed with Richard. They kind of respected him, and they kind of thought he was this, this uh, you know, classic little uh, smarmy villain. He got away with it. They kind of respected the way he did it. That thing, you know, it was kind of clever. And he was a rascal. A rascal, exactly. At the end of the day, they're like, I can sleep better at night knowing I lost to Richard. And it wasn't because Richard screwed them over or because he was mean or because he was evil or because he was ma Machiavellian. The reason he won is because they thought Kelly was wishy-washy and they liked Richard more. And that's really what it all comes down to. The jury will vote for the person they like more. Agreed. And I think on that note, that's really all about it for Borneo. This time I think we've finally covered the season. We have nothing else to say about it. Any last comments? No. no. I, uh, Survivor Borneo, great season. Can't wait to move on and uh, talk about my personal favorite, Survivor Australia, some more. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, Australia is going to be fun. This is one of my favorite seasons, a season that unfairly gets crapped on. We talked about it a little last time. Um, but this will be our next podcast. Survivor Historians number three will be all about Australia. I can't promise when it's going to come out, but you can get our, uh, our podcast on iTunes. I talk about it on Twitter. I talk about it on Facebook. Just look for me on Twitter. I'm Mario J. Lanza. On uh, Facebook, I'm Mario Lanza. You can go to funny115.com, or, again, you can go to iTunes. And hopefully we will have an Australia podcast up soon. And if you have any feedback, just let us know. Any last comments, Jay? Uh, 
watch what I, I urge everyone to rewatch Borneo. If you, if you've seen it before and you were, it, you, whether you were there from the beginning or not rewatch Borneo, but don't look at it with the strategical glasses on or, you know, Oh, well, you know, this person didn't do this or they didn't work this. Just look at it as a, as a, as a, as a show where you're kind of discovering and looking for the roots of the game. Watch Pagong, watch Pagong, watch Pagong. I'm on Twitter as well. J underscore Fisher. You can see me uh, there. Uh, on Facebook, I'm in the previously on Survivor group, uh, delivering tons of snark, and uh, I'm always willing to uh, dish it out as well as uh, be the butt of some jokes too. How about you, Paul? How can we contact you? Um, you can find me on. I have a Twitter. I actually forget what the handle is. Uh, we Montans don't use Twitter, so uh, you're probably not going to get much from me there. But uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook. Look me up, Paul Oselson. I'm on the Survivor Group, uh, or you can uh, go to SurvivorPodcast.com. That's the tribe's website, and uh, get a hold of me that way. So you can find me if you really try hard. All right, for the three of us from the Survivor Historians, uh, thanks for tuning in. And just remember, if someone offers you a sandwich, the correct payment is a blowjob. Talk to you guys later.